just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. A 2023 Draft Champions League draft in August of 2022? I'll ask Rob Pietro about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 2nd. It's show number 34 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter Podcast, discussing podcasting the first seven rounds of a very early NFBC Draft Champions League draft with 14 fantasy baseball experts, He'll also talk about his own successful track record in NFBC leagues, and he'll have his boons and banes for 2023. We'll also have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including a hot prospect in the desert, a star turned by Spencer Strider, and changes in the LA pitching staff. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including a hot prospect in Baltimore. Bad news for Houston, but a warm prospect there, too, and a shakeup in New York involving a hot prospect. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Colorado first baseman Michael Tolia. And in extra innings, I'll be explaining why I might have been wrong about the MLB playoffs. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? September is here, a month to go. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter podcast. Rob, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's your first time. Thank you for having me, Patrick. I'm extremely honored to come on your podcast. I've been... uh probably listen. It's probably my first fantasy baseball podcast I started listening to when I learned what podcasts were and uh, been a loyal subscriber to Baseball HQ now for about 12 years. So changed my fantasy life and uh, changed my listening um, life to uh, you know learn a new way to absorb fantasy sports. So thank you for having me here. Oh, it's my pleasure. You, of course, are the host of the Pull Hitter podcast, which I really like. Uh, how long have you been doing the pod? I started the pod in the summer of 2020. Um, I got hurt at work um, in the fall of 2019. And while I was injured, um, I bought a mic. My wife um, inspired me to, as she said, all the things you listen to, you're so good at playing it. Why don't you do what they do? And I said, nah, I can't do that. Um, But you know, I sat down, I scribbled down some ideas, I scribbled down some names, possible names for podcasts and for, you know, um, a handle on Twitter. I wanted it all to match. Um, and once I finally 
got brave enough to lay out a track um, to the world. Um, it actually coincided with me winning the NFBC main event um, draft champions overall. And it just like kind of made my ability to get guests, uh, you know, big time guests on the show. So, you know, way easier than if I just was, uh, you know, some other guy who didn't do well in the league. So it was kind of like a perfect marriage of things, uh, you know, that happened in that span. So, um, yeah, I've been doing it since then. And I uh, try to do like one a week at least and sometimes two. During the off season, when it's draft time, I really like to pump it up and get some guests on the show to talk to us about, you know, how they're g- getting prepped and ready for the leagues. In my show, since we started, I think that was back in 2006, the focus has been on getting other people who are in the fantasy baseball experts industry or communication industry, whatever you want to call it. And your focus at your pod, I think, is pretty interesting because you tend to get guys who actually play the games. You have some top-level players in NFBC in particular. John Paulsma has been on your show. and uh, um, yep. How did you decide that the focus was going to be on players rather than experts? I like I said I I won the I won the overall and I started connecting with a bunch of people on Twitter um, just reaching out and saying you know way to go um, I was in the NFBC forums you know talking to people and I really was originally looking to do you know like a wide array of of covering fantasy sports um, especially baseball and just you know my head to head leagues and keeper leagues and dynasty leagues and um, it just felt like it was so well covered by everybody else. You know, there's just so much good information out there and so many good podcasts, like the, the gentleman that you just had on Joe Rico. I mean, he, he covers something every day and it's for, you know, daily moves and head to head moves. So there's just so much stuff out there. And I said, you know, let me just try to, you know, I want to learn how to get better. And I almost used it for like myself as well is to say, you know, how can I learn about getting better in this forum? I knew I had to get better. Um, I wasn't content with just winning that one league because I really didn't do well in some other leagues. So I said, you know, let me try to get on the, you know, the guys have been playing fantasy for years, analysts and also players, people who are in the, in this league, in the forum, in the site, using the, you know, the format that I wanted to get used to. So to, you know, kind of uh, spur my ability to, um, do player evaluation better. And then I think it really just blossomed when I learned that roster construction, like game theory, like almost trumps player evaluation. And and it's something I really, you know, like it was such a wow kind of moment for me. And that's what I really love about getting the guest on. I'm constantly taking notes. I'm like re-listening and like saying, wow, I never thought of that. Wow. You know, it's so um, I'm learning. And I just think it's, uh, I think just think there's so many voices out there because there's that's the thing with a lot of these players, right, Patrick? They don't want to, like, get their secrets out, you know, because they're so – it's, like, it's an investment thing for them. They want to stay on top of the game. and But getting to uh, get them to open up and give me, like, any snippets of their of their insight is really cool. So I enjoy that part of it. I remember once years ago writing for Baseball HQ and Ron Chandler, who was still the owner and operator – at the time, got a few of us together that had been there for a while, and he said, you know, what can we do to improve our marketing? And I said to him, you know what, the biggest problem you have is your best customers are the ones least likely to recommend you because they don't want to give up the edge to everybody else in their league. 
right? You, you get a bunch of fantastic information off the pull hitter podcast. The last thing you're going to do is tell everybody else in your league about it because you don't want them to know. And I said, that's the problem that you have to face. And then I, what I suggested to him is I said, what you should offer is a, a subscription that's maybe three or four times the regular rate but the subscriber gets to give you 11 other email addresses that won't be allowed to subscribe. So he can lock out all the other guys in his league and, and know that they're not going to have this access to the saving information that he does. And, you know, Ron said, well, that's an interesting idea, but I'm not going to do that because, you know, A, I don't know how, and and B, it would be so easy for the guys, other guys in the league to just get different email addresses or skirt the rule somehow. But I thought it was pretty interesting. So when you started your podcast, do you remember who was your very first guest? Oh, it was my brother. Oh. (laughs) Uh, I had my brother on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. Before I dove into the NFBC world, you know, I was doing some podcasts by myself, and then I did one with my brother. Um, so my brother Mike, he he's extremely into fantasy as well. Um, all my brothers are, um, and he actually went he- um, undefeated in a head-to-head um, home keeper league that we had, um, which is uh, head-to-head categories, but they don't tally up. You just if you win seven to three, you want to know. He went undefeated one year, so. Extremely mathematical mind. He's a analyst for HBO, and he's just uh, really good at Excel. And uh, he was way, way ahead of uh, a lot of other players in the league who were just extremely casual. He was able to interpret it, uh, the baseball HQ, um, you know, info into just really beating us. So we had a nice, light, nice long conversation. And then actually, my second guest was my wife, who's uh, extremely obsessed with um, murder podcast, and so she actually looked up like a baseball player that was murdered, you know, and we did like a little podcast on that and uh, it was pretty cool. And then, and then, like I said, I, I, I entered into the world of the NFBC realm when, uh, you know, when I really, you know, got, got big and uh, it, it uh, changed my guest list. <laughs> well, you mentioned having played in a home league with your brothers and, and I guess guys in the neighborhood and guys you grew up with and stuff. When did you actually start playing the game itself and uh, how did you get started in it? Um, so interesting, um, my brothers and I have three older brothers and our father used to buy our Stratomatic like once every three or four years when he had the, the money to get a new pack, you know, but we would recycle the packs and, you know, cross off some older players and make them into new players, you know, and, uh, who are we going to make David justice? Uh, maybe Kent Urbeck, you know, we used to have so much fun, like, you know, like really trying to use that uh, skill that we had to like make new players, but, um, pretty interesting educational kind of thing as well. Right. Because you're, when you're doing that, I know other guys who've done it and they said they learned so much about players by saying, I've got to take this card out of circulation because the guy doesn't play. So I need to find a new player who kind of maps onto this card set pretty closely. And that's a really fantastic little piece of education in, in assessing player value. It's, it's, it absolutely is. Like I look back on that and really realize how much I started to learn how to, um, player, you know, evaluate players and just even construct rosters. Cause we would make, you know, we would have drafts and, you know, we'd want certain players in certain spots. And, you know, I just remember always playing with the Cardinals too, like all the fast Cardinal players, like Vince Coleming and Tommy Hur. you could just steal like every, every base with those guys. That's a good steal ratings. And, uh, but you know, we, that kind of evolved into, like I said, my dad passed away in 1990 and we just wanted to keep it going. And like, in terms of, you know, keeping, keeping the baseball alive. So 
1994, we actually just, uh, um, after the strike shortened year, we, <laughs> we did our first fantasy draft after the season was over. S- silly us. Like, this is how we got into it. But it spurred us to, like, continue playing versus each other in a very loose fashion. Um, but then um, in 2006, we actually uh, started um, in 2000, I actually started playing head-to-head leagues. And then in 2006, we formed uh, like the home league that I currently have right now, which is a head-to-head league. And um, it, it's, uh, it's been ongoing from there. I first got started in Roto in uh, 2014. Um, I kind of watched my brother from afar play in a league that he was involved with, with work. But in 2014 is when I really took on my own team. And that's when I fell in love with Roto. It kind of... Uh, just, uh, I know I was late to the game, but I really just became obsessed with the with the roto format. It's funny you should mention the uh, drafting a league in a season that just was over, so you know you don't have to look at projections. You know what happened, but I don't know if you have heard of this, but in the last year or two, again going back to Ron Chandler, he had these leagues where he'd invite guys in to play, and they'd pick a year. And not necessarily the yes. previous years, but like 1983 or whatever. And everybody knew the outcomes, but it was an excellent exercise because it all came down to roster building at that point. And they were auction leagues, not draft leagues. So you had to, you know, really have a tremendous command of what kind of roster you were building, knowing what you were going to get from each player. But everybody knew what every player was going to get. You weren't matching your projections against the other guy's projections and hoping that yours were better, that you had a better handle on it. Everybody knew what everybody was going to produce. And so the challenge of the league was how do you manage your money and how do you manage the auction? I thought it was fantastic and I hope he keeps doing it. I I didn't play. He offered me a spot, but I was busy or something and I really regret not having played. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I remember that being really popular too. When the, when, when the world locked down for the, you know, COVID when first came around and, uh, that was really just a way to fill in the time. And I remember following all those leagues. Um, I believe um, Derek Grand Riper too, uh, from Reeds and Barrels did something where, you know, you had 30, a span of 30 years and you had to have one team represented, but it couldn't be, you couldn't double up a team and you couldn't double up a year. And it, it was just a fascinating exercise. And, and it was also fascinating to just really dive into some stats from the, you know, from the eighties and the nineties and just see the difference in the game and how it changed. It was really just, it, it sprung up so many, you know, a season that I was like, wow, this, this player did this and this player did that. It was just, it's really cool to look back on that. And it's, and like I said, it is a good exercise. Uh, you said you've played head to head, you've played Roto. What formats are your favorites? Um, I really, really enjoy the Roto format. Um, but I played everything, you know, I, I played points league, like a head to head points league, roto points leagues, played daily leagues, um, best ball. Um, I just got into dynasty league during, during the pandemic. I joined my first dynasty league and I also started up a dynasty league with pretty much a lot of the members of my keeper league. Um, and I really enjoy that too, because I think it's helping me a lot to, um, it's helping my redraft game, you know, just knowing when these prospects come up, I don't just have a, a I don't have to do on the fly um, assessments of them. I kind of really have a good knowledge of them already. And we just maybe have to dive a little deeper. Um, but right now the Roto format is, um, is something that stands out. You know, it's funny. I mentioned the first Roto league I joined, which was 2014. It was a, 
kind of odd league because they didn't play with the NL West or the AL West. So when they started the league in the eighties, um, they didn't get those stats, you know, you know, uh, quickly. So they always kept it out. But even when I joined it, I said, well, we have the internet now, you know, we could, we could fix that, you know, but they still kept it out. And it was just an odd thing, you know, to never have to be able to never get a chance to get Mike Trout or Clayton Kershaw, you know, in their prime years was just really a different thing to do. So, uh, the valuation system in that was really, really crazy. But, um, uh, I just thought it was funny to fill it in on that, like weird, I don't know, league that, that was my first introduction to Roto. So when I got a chance to get, draft all the players in Roto, I was, uh, extremely happy. <laughs> and Roto's scoring, did you play auctions and straight drafts? Yes. Yes. Auctions, um, and straight drafts. Um, that first Roto league I joined was an auction and funny thing, um, my experience with auction in my home league, which is head to head was, you know, standard, you throw a player out and you shout out values, you know, 12, 14, 16. So I showed up to this draft and, um, in 2014. And so the first guy gets thrown out and I say five, you know, and I go, whoa, 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 what are you doing? You don't go next. <laughs> and I say, what do you mean? What do you mean? I don't go next. I'm like, there's an order. And they said, yeah, it goes around the table. And I said, it goes around the table. So I looked at my brother who also joined the league that year. And I said, this is going to take eight hours. And the guy goes, yeah, it does. It takes nine to 10 hours. I said, are you kidding me? So it, it goes around the table and you have a chance to bid or pass. But if it comes around back the table toward you and you already passed, you can't jump back in, you know? So yeah. I was like, this is, this is wild, you know? And so it's, uh, it's, it was really a lot to get used to that first couple of years but then i kind of used it to my advantage like if i didn't like a player i would just pass and i would just get into the next player i would just dive into the next move and while everyone was bidding i was just setting up the next couple of picks i wanted to make <laughs> yeah i've heard of some crazy formats along those lines that I, I talked to one guy about it once and they had a thing where you could pass three times before you were out of the out of the running but to keep track of it, your ball cap was on your head. But if you passed, you had to put it on the table. And then if you passed a second time, you had to turn it around so the bill was facing you rather than facing the, the center of the room. And that's how they kept track oh of how God. many passes you had. And once you once you were out, Jeez. you put your hat back on your head. And I thought, this is you know sounding a bit like a Monty Python skit to me. And, and talk about right? take forever as well. Gee whiz, it, it just went on and on and on. Especially if you have a couple of owls. I mean, you probably don't know where the hell to put your hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. No kidding. And, you, you know, somebody says, are you going to throw your hat into the ring? I said, I might as well. It's been everywhere else so far in this idiotic format. So, yeah, I... I I got offered a spot in that league and I thought, nah, it's going to take too long and stuff. But uh, I, I shouldn't complain because the auction day is the highlight of my whole year when I'm in uh, auction league. I, I love right. being in that auction and, and responding in real time to the challenges and the shifts of value and stuff that take place and the opportunities and stuff. But now you mentioned you were the overall champion in the NFBC Draft Champions League in 2020. Before we talk about your particular team, for listeners who don't know, what is the Draft Champions format? Okay, so the Draft Champions format, um, it's hosted on the NFC website, um, and it is uh, 50 rounds with no fab, no in-season pickups, uh, rotisserie style, 10 categories. Um, you still have to make your lineup changes, so it's not a best ball type of league. So you have to make your lineup changes bi-weekly for batters, Monday to Thursday, Friday to Sunday, and pitchers. Um, is weekly, so Monday to Sunday there. Um, and yeah, it has an overall component. 
um, as well as you playing everyone in your league, you versus everyone who's playing in that format for an overall prize. What do you like about the format? Oh, man, I like so many things about it. But really, to me, I just like that ability to try to forecast the whole season in one shot. It's, you know, it's a lot of work and it seems like so daunting at first. But I really love pouring over depth charts, like the organizational probabilities, who might get called up. Um, You know, recently, you know, just getting really like into the contract and arbitration statuses, just knowing um, especially for the closers, you know, some teams like to keep their price down. So you kind of, kind of know who might not get saved because of those reasons. Um, I think you could just test your ability to, um, try to read into what teams might do, you know, for the whole season. And, um, it, it, it's also like a good way to play in some leagues and not have to worry about fab all season. So those are the biggest things I love about the format. You mentioned that you played in 2020, uh, won that league, and that seemed to th- seems to me that it would have thrown another kind of wrinkle into your planning in that ordinarily you're planning for a six-month season. Now you've got to plan basically for a much shorter season, barely two months. And it, did it affect your risk assessment in that you could take more chances with the shorter run, or were you less likely to accept risk because you were uh, the short run means that uh, losing a guy would be that much more disastrous? Well, it's funny because my draft was in March and the NFBC kept all the drafts that were done prior to the lockdown as part of the original overall. So my team that won in the short season was a team I drafted in March with the intention for a full season. Is that right? So I didn't even, yes, yes. So there was still, uh, you know, 3,800 or 4,200 entries. And I think the NFBC made the decision um, you know, that they were just going to keep those teams in play. It was just too many to either refund or, you know, um, you know, give just er- erase all that. So they decided to let it go. Um, they did have second chance leagues, uh, second chance draft champions, which was for the anyone who wanted to redraft with, you know, a different strategy, a different outlook. It wasn't part of the overall. It didn't have an overall component. It was just strictly league play. I got involved with a couple of those too. Uh, but the, yeah, the team I drafted was just for the long season. So I didn't um, have that ability in that overall component to, you know, try to change my strategy. I understand that in these leagues that there's various time rules. Some of them run slow where you can pick every four hours or something like that. And some of them are regular kind of one minute drafts. Which ones do you prefer to play and why? So the one that I won in the overall, it was an express format. So it was all 50 picks in one night. Um, Last year I did one express draft champions and I won that league as well. Um, I really enjoy that having to cram all the 50 picks in one in one night because I think that there's a pressure involved with I think you kind of know in the first 10 rounds when it comes around and you're kind of just like yeah I know who I want to take I know I want to take here but when it comes to round 30 40 it it's kind of a different feeling of when you're on the clock and you got a minute of who to take so I kind of think that I'm well prepared enough with you know with depth charts and like where where I want to get certain positions or stats that um, 
when it comes to those rounds that I'm ready to pick. And I feel like sometimes I felt like in draft that everyone goes down to five seconds, three seconds. And I could tell that they're, you know, like kind of got an edge there by just, you know, being more prepared. So, but the, but I mean, the slow drafts do off, offer a good, a good pace of change. You know, you can maybe do multiple drafts at once, or if you got a job that, you know, that's really just allows you to not sit down and do a draft all at once. Um, it, it's pretty cool. It's, it's, it's an ability to, you know, um, some people actually, you know, study uh, on the fly, you know, like on the draft for their first time. Like they start diving in into the draft and, and it's just uh, I think it gives everyone an ability to, you know, do something they like. I agree that all these formats have their advantages and disadvantages and it's it's probably a good idea to try a bunch of them because you'll find out that maybe you're good at one versus the other, better at one than you thought you'd be, these kinds of things. Or maybe you like them all and you end up playing them all and that's cool too, except it starts costing yeah. real money. <laughs> you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David here with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter Podcast. And Rob, uh, you're back in NFBC this year, I know. How many teams are you running? Oh, this year I have 24 teams. Um Sounds like a lot. Sometimes it feels like too many. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have, you know, six fab leagues, which I think is a sweet spot for me. Um, it it's, it's, takes up a decent amount of time, but not not too much where I'm sacrificing life. Um, so I think that's, that's, the, that's the sweet spot for me, like five or six fab leagues max. Um, the rest of DCs are, got one best ball um, and... Yeah, I mean, um, because like you just mentioned, Patrick, I love all the formats. You know, I love I love the different you know size leagues, twelve team leagues, fifteen team leagues, uh, best ball, or you know, um, draft and hold with twelve teams, draft and hold with fifteen teams. So there's so many things, and I just I feel like each one. A lot of people tell me that they they like to just zone in on one, and and they're better uh, in one or the other, but I, I tend to think that all leagues help me in some form. You know, I feel like evaluating players in different formats, um, helps me in all leagues. I've had other people who play multiple formats, multiple leagues, tell me exactly the same thing that in a, in a sort of almost unexplainable way, figuring out which guy you really like or which guys you really like in a, in a head to head points league format, which is a different format than rotisserie, nonetheless gives you information about that player that really gives you an opportunity to apply that non roto knowledge into a roto context because it is important knowledge. And there's a reason sometimes that a guy is a decent head to head points player that you might want and isn't one for Roto. And when you understand that difference, now you can maybe slightly sharpen your understanding of his Roto value. Absolutely. When I checked the NFBC main event on Monday, I noticed that you were in 35th place overall, which sounds pretty good considering how many teams there are. You're about a thousand points out of the lead, but there's a lot of teams, which means you can make a lot of ground up in a very short time. How much distance do you think you can make up with five weeks left in the season? Oh, I did. I've been doing some, you know, I've been trying to get more focused on doing specific math uh, on all different categories, how much, a, you know, a home run is worth in my cluster of stats, uh, where I am, how much a save is worth, such and such. And I don't think I'm going to have enough to really make a decent push to the like top 10 or anything. I'm just trying to really make sure I, I you know, I get into, 
maybe enough to top 25 where it can get some overall prize back. Um, I think there's about four or 500 points if I'm really lucky that I could, I could gain. Um, and even then it just, everything has to go really, really right. Your more successful of your two teams was drafted online and the other team was live. Do you think there's a difference in team performance in drafting online where there are fewer distractions versus drafting live where you're maybe in New York where you don't go all the time. So you're going to go to the restaurants, maybe see a show or even worse Vegas, you know, where you have all kinds of distractions. Do you think drafting online is an advantage? I don't actually, I get more distracted at home to be honest with you. Um, I could see maybe in my peripheral, a bill that I haven't paid. Or something that I, you know, like gets stuck in my head and stupid me is like, stop thinking about that. It's fantasy baseball draft time. So I like being in the room. I like reading the faces. I like hearing reactions to draft picks. Um, I really just, you know, like I compare it to like playing sports, like just the competitiveness, just to, just watching, watching the, you know, everything that someone's doing. And I, I just really am into that. And I also... I also think that, so when you're live and you make a pick or anyone makes a pick, the moderator has to put in the pick. And usually there's like a five second lag between when you really become on the clock, right? And then even so, when you're at your computer and you got like 20 seconds left, if, if you're on a, like a couple of different pages, if I'm on Baseball HQ, if I'm on Fangraphs or whatever, you can kind of go on the website and then you're scrambling to scroll down a guy if he's not in your queue. So many things can go wrong at the last 20 seconds and you just like, and you just press a button at the live draft. It could just like Cedric Mullins, you know, you could just say a name at the last second and, and, and just be okay with it, you know? And so I think you, you, you have like an extra, I think of a safe zone, like almost like 30 seconds of extra, like relaxation, like less anxiety to just make, make the, make the best pick you can. So me, I prefer being live. And uh, last year, my main event, that I did live, I won compared to the one I did online that I didn't win. So, um, and this this year, the one that actually drafted live was half and half. So the NFBC couldn't fill that league live. So they asked us if it was okay if they invited some people to do it online. So about nine of us were there live and the rest of uh, uh, them were doing it online. So it wasn't even a full live. It was half and half almost. In your individual main event league, Rob, you're half a point out of the lead as of Monday night's games. Very competitive team. Do you like your chances of taking down the pennant in the individual league? Oh, man. You know, I'm I'm a big competitor, but I'm a, also a realist. I think I got about a 50% chance of pulling it off. I have a good amount of fab left, which I feel good about. Um, I have some really solid multi-eligibility and a really good pitching staff. Um, so... There's, there's there's two categories where I could trade four points with the guy in front of me. So if I could swing those two categories, it'd be really, really key. One of them is runs, which is about, I'm about 12 away. So I'm really going to have to go on a solid run, no pun intended, to get that. But um, I have three points in Ks, which is um, that that I can get. It's only about five strikeouts away. So um, And I can get two points in wins, which is only about two or three wins away. So... I spent some of the last month, five weeks, trying to catch up and save. So I actually gained about four or five points in saves um, by adding in some extra relievers, some spec closers, um, protecting my ratios on top of even the stellar staff I have. And so I'm hoping that I could be a little bit aggressive now with some two-star pitchers and some starters down the line and 
hopefully, um, you know, try to make that run. But the guy in front of me, Bob Katsurumpas, is having a just, just, just has a really solid team. And the gentlemen's behind me, Bradley Libros and Rob Silver, they're just really, really awesome players and kind of like like mind thinkers like me too. Kind of like I feel like we're always on to the same players. You want to look at the fab results. So it's not going to be easy, but it's definitely attainable. I was wondering about the idea that when you look at your position in the overall, you're 35th or, or were as of Monday, and you think you might be able to sneak into 25th place, but at the same time, if you don't, then you're not going to cash in that league, in the overall. But if you win your individual league, that's like a $7,000 payday, and that would cover all of your investments for, for the uh, and, and turn a profit on the year. At what point do you consider just not running things the same way as you would if you were more competitive and just saying, I'm not going to worry at all anymore about the overall. I'm going to focus entirely be on the uh, individually because I have a better chance of cashing. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so right now I think I'm, I am more focused on the league for sure. Um, for the overall, I need like a big home run push. Um, that would gain me the points I needed to get into that top 25. Uh, but in my league, um, the next gentleman ahead of me is 10 homers away from gaining one point. So, you know, I have to find a way to, st- I still want to be aggressive with, you know, home runs because they're going to, you know, I need that in general for runs and RBIs as well. But the points I need to, you know, really boost me would be on the pitching side. So that's where more of the uh, stats are clustered. So it's going to try to find that sweet balance of, of, of winning the league. Cause I think that's first, I I'd rather, you know, sit atop a league and then cash in the overall. Um, so both are within reach. So it's like kind of a, a you know um, you know, it's uh, it's tough. It's tough to choose. So I'm just trying my best to toe the line of both, but definitely the league is first on my mind. Over in the draft champions competition, your best team sits 73rd overall, there's 4,800 teams, so 73rd is in a pretty decent position. I think you're in the top 1.5% of all the teams. How many teams did you enter in the contest? Because I've, I've seen that there's some guys who have 25, 30 teams in there. Oh, yeah. This, uh, some of my friends have a lot of teams in there for sure. Um, so this year I did um, 13 draft champions overall. I have a couple of the, uh, not really draft champions, um, draft and holds. A couple of them are what the NFPC called 50s, the NFPC 50s, which is the $50 entry, which is 12-team draft and holds. Still 50 rounds, but 12 teams instead of 15. Um, And yeah, uh, you know, this... It's it's tough trying to manage all these teams. I bought a nine pack this year. It was you know like a discounted price, um, and ha- halfway through December, I was really on pace to just have a nice pace of of, of filling those out. Uh, fortunately, in the beginning of January, my mother went through some really scary health things, so it was about a two month you know uh, probably two months where i completely shut myself out between drafting and even absorbing you know any type of articles or news i was just wasn't focused on that so when i came back into drafting i had to like kind of squish them in you know i had to get them in i couldn't just waste the waste the uh, my entries so um i don't think it's something i'm going to do next year with getting the pack i think i'll just take them one at a time that 73rd place overall team is winning its individual league by a mile. 
mostly on the strength of a really terrific pitching staff. Tristan McKenzie, Aaron Nola, Alec Manoa, all these guys have terrific ratios. And of course, giving you strikeouts aplenty. Uh, It looks like your five main starters, those three plus Pavetta and Michael Kopech, have scored for you every week but one or two starts. How big a focus was pitching for you in this particular league? Um, I think pitching is usually always fairly important to me. Um, I I think it I think it depends on 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 the specific builds I'm aiming for in certain drafts. So this draft I started off with uh, Bo Bichette and Stalin Marte, so I got a good solid base of speed, um, some decent power and average, and then I got Goldie and JTR um, in rounds four and five. So, um, you know I you know. A, Sometimes I go like the pocket ace route, or sometimes I usually, you know, try to get three pitchers, maybe out of the five, six round. I, I like to switch it up. So I always really like to keep my eye on pitching. Um, but I think with draft champions, I kind of know the pockets of the later pitchers I want. And Nick, Nick Havetta and McKenzie um, and Andrew Heaney, they were the kind of guys that I would always target later on. I thought they would be well enough to, um, you know, really kind of anchor the, the back half of my staff. Andrew Heaney was off to such a terrific start and then uh, just all those injuries. Of course, he's always had injury problems. When you have nine entries, Rob, uh, do you have a strategy of strategies? That is, do you keep to a single strategy pretty much for all the teams that are the same, accounting for differences in the draft boards as you go? Or do you try to spread the risk in a certain way by employing different strategies entirely across the drafts. So, you know, stars and scrubs in team one, spread the risk in team two, heavy pitching team three, heavy hitting team four, versatile players, league five, you know, this kind of thing, or is it all pretty much the same? Um, I tend to have some core, core things that I'm always going to, you know, stick to. And then I sprinkle in some diversification. Um, Like I mentioned, sometimes I like to go pocket aces, um, sometimes, you know, I usually try to have th- three starting pitchers in the first 10 picks that are like strong, heavy inning pitch, you know, strong ratio type of SPs. Um, and then I usually tend to draft two better catchers. Um, I like to ha- I have a lot of teams with Contreras and, and Real Muto or Sal, Sal P and Real Muto, um, it's something I don't like to worry about. Like I, I really feel like they're, they're kind of like set it and forget it type catchers where even when they miss time, I don't even have to replace them because the stats they're giving me, you know, during the season is just well off better than a lot of the other catchers. And then what I like to do, I think, is diversify later. Um, most of my most owned players come after picks like 280p. Um so, for instance, in the draft champions, um, my most owned players at the top of, of having three leagues is JTR, William Contreras. But the players I have six shares of out of nine leagues are like guys like Nick Havetta, Andrew Heaney, um, Bailey Ober, Miles Mikolas, Michael A. Taylor. Um, there's there's guys I specifically target at the end of drafts um, that I don't mind having heavy shares of. Um, but up at the top, I like to mix it up between my bats and my arms. You give your team's descriptive names, uh, Ciro DC1, Gennaro DC2, uh, Mistral DC5, Lil Bird DC8. So understanding what DC5, DC8, that's the number of the team that you have. But what's the significance of the other parts of those colorful names? 
Um, this winter, I actually watched uh, a show called Gamora on HBO Max. Um, and the names are from the characters in the show. Uh, there's a lot of players in the NFBC that kind of have a theme to their team names. Um, I kind of got inspired by my good friend, Steve Weimer, who works for Baseball HQ, just really great fantasy baseball player as well. And he had uh, the Wire theme name. So it was all, you know, teams from the Wire, uh, names from the Wire, and uh, including a couple of his team names this year, Juke the Stats. And uh, I, I, I always thought that was a cool idea to have a theme. So I was watching it at the time that I started drafting. So I just kind of went with that little theme instead of just having all pull hitter one, pull hitter two, <laughs> which I did last You're also in the 30s overall in the $150 online auction, and you're leading that individual league by four points. How likely do you feel like you're going to be to cash overall and in the league? Overall, I think it's tough. Um, There hasn't really been a lot of movement I've been able to make um, in the overall. I was sitting in the top 10 earlier in the season. I thought I had a good shot, but my team just didn't take the route that I thought it was. But losing Bryce Harper hurt my team in the power department for sure. Um, so, and also the overall prizes for the top twenty in 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 that entry is relatively small. So, I'm just playing for the league, and uh, the league is the league is interesting because on the start of week twenty one, which is August twenty second, I was down two points. I was down one twelve to one ten. But as of today, I'm up 117 to 104 and a half. So um, it was just extremely crazy switch of, uh, I don't know if it's just because I had a recent influx of more pitchers than the other uh, players, but um, there's some extremely sharp players behind me, Mark Winnicker and the overall DC win of last year, Thomas Alonia. Um, so I got to be, um, I got to be sharp and secure some ratios and wins if I want to hold them off. When I hear you say that the uh, swing of overall points in that league was so abrupt, it makes me think that a lot of your categories must be jammed really tight, which is as much a threat to you as it is an opportunity. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's the wins, for example, the first player is 77, then it's 76, 75, 73, 72, 72, 72, 71, 71, 71. So it's, it's there, and it's just so much to be had. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating. I think this is the best part of, you know, of, of fantasy is just really trying to outsmart everyone around you. It's, and it's also taking it to the next level. You know, if you have the time or, or you're looking at everyone else's rosters, you know, are you seeing who's ahead of you? How many starters are they starting? You know, are you going to have to fab a couple more two-star pitchers? You know, I think that's really a big part of having the time to dive into each league. If you do too many leagues, you might not be able to do it. But to really make that move, you know, you have to see the trends of, of the other players in your league, who's ahead of you, who's behind you, and what their rosters consist of, you know, who they're starting every week. I think that's really crucial. I agree with you entirely. I run spreadsheets where I kind of project the league, two or three different projections. I average them out, and then I say, okay, here's what the results are going to be, and where are my opportunities, and where are my threats in all of the uh, right. in all of the categories. And I find that every year, no matter what I do, no matter how I do it, the wins category is always really super tight. I got two wins last night, both in relief, and I jumped three points. Let me close by asking you something I ask all of the accomplished NFBC players like you. If your sole goal was just to make money, 
could you profitably just ignore the overall race and use more extreme strategies to lock down wins in individual leagues because you know that everybody else has to play balanced because they want to compete in the overall? Could you punt a category in your league which would give you a lot of strength in that individual league because everybody else can't punt and thereby win more individual leagues, cash, you know, get your cash winnings from the individual leagues and just ignore the overall? It's another great question. And I actually just don't prefer that approach. I just prefer to have balanced teams. Um, and I just feel like if you build balance to start a season, um, I feel like right now, personally, in the way I'm developing as a fantasy player, I have a decent enough of awareness and of an in-season skill to know when to switch into league mode, you know, like in-season and how to attack it. So I feel like there comes a time where I'm like, okay, the overall, it's like my first main event. I know the overall is far out and I've known that for a while. So it's just been mostly trying to attack the league. And I feel like if you eliminate a possibility right from the start, I guess it's just something in my brain that just doesn't like me to do that. You know, I don't like eliminating a path right from the start. Um, but, and I also feel like, how do I know if other teams in my league are going to feel similar? So then in that draft, I might be battling myself too many times, you know? So I just like balance. I'm a really bad, like I, I strive for balance and then I like to tweak in season as, as I have to go. Well, Rob, this has been terrific so far. Let's take a break here. We've got our national league and American league news coming up with Nick and Ray. Then we'll come back for part two. What do you think? Sounds good. Let's do it. Rob DiPietro hosts the Pull Hitter Podcast. He'll be back a little later in the show. And coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Nick has the National League News. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the lineup outlook column, analyst Greg Jewett looks at growing opportunities for Adley Rutschman, O'Neill Cruz, and Gavin Sheets. The lineup outlook column is just one of the great resources available all the time when you're a member of the team at baseballhq.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start with some good news. Rookie Spencer Strider of Atlanta had 16 strikeouts and allowed just two hits in eight innings to lead Atlanta to a 3-0 win over Colorado on Thursday night. And the reason I bring it up, it was a record for an Atlanta nine-inning game. A brave record for a nine-inning game, a tremendous 106-pitch outing. Strider fanned his last two batters with two runners on base in the eighth. Fastball was still hitting 98 miles an hour at that point. Previous record was John Smoltz, 15 strikeouts in a nine-inning game against the Mets in 2005 and against Montreal in 1992. Warren Spahn had 15 strikeouts in a nine-inning game in 1960 when the franchise was in Milwaukee, and he also actually had 18 strikeouts in a game in 1952, but that came in extra innings. Seems weird to talk about a pitcher going not only nine innings, but going into extra innings to get 18 strikeouts in a game. that They don't make them like Warren Spahn anymore. 
No, they sure don't. <laughs> you have to wonder. You wonder how many pitches he threw in that game. But, uh, no, they don't make him like that anymore at all. And, of course, they don't make him like John Smoltz either. It's hard to imagine uh, having 15 strikeout games 13 years apart. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, Smoltz, Smoltz had, had a, a 22-year career in the major leagues. And all but, la- all but the last year in Atlanta. Uh, just amazing. Now, you, you wonder if we'll ever see anything like that again with a guy spending 20-some years with a single team. And he spent at least some of the time as a closer, did he not? I believe he did, yes, very definitely. Spent time as a closer as well as a starter. And that may have, in fact, extended his career because it, uh, it kind of shortened the uh, the number of pitches he was throwing. But uh, that that's really amazing. I think of 22 seasons pitching in the majors, just amazing. It really is. And uh, meanwhile, Spencer Strider in his first year has looked very, very good for Atlanta. I'm wondering what you think about his prospects as a draft selection next year in, in our fantasy drafts. What round do you think he might be climbing up into with outings like this? Well, if, if outings like that continue through the next month, I, I could see him in the in the second or third round or who knows, even higher. Some guys might dra- draft him in the first round. But you've got to be very careful with pitchers, especially guys throwing 98 miles an hour. I worry about health of all pitchers when they're throwing that hard. And uh, it's, it's got to be a concern, and that's a lot of strain on the shoulder and the elbow and, and the arm and all of that. So I, I would just say be careful. I don't spend a lot on pitchers that young unless they're, they've, you know, until they're fairly well established and indicate that their health can take that kind of abuse on their arm. He's 23 years old, which is a little before physical maturity. And I agree with you about that because we know that really the bones and what have you are still finishing off their growth before uh, age 25 or so. And at that point, you can start throwing a lot of innings. Uh, I think of guys like Nolan Ryan, who pitched sort of in long relief, picking up 80, 90 innings a year at that age of 22, 23, until really getting going at the age 25, 26, and then going on to, of course, as we know, into his 40s and pitching quite effectively. But I know that there's going to be a lot of people looking at if Strider stopped pitching tomorrow, maybe waiting for the playoffs, 267 ERA, 098 whip, He's got uh, 13, almost 14 strikeouts per nine and walking three per nine. This is a very, very impressive pitching record. It is indeed. A very, a very skilled pitcher. I mean, absolutely one of the, one of the elites. Uh, and, and we hope that he will still be one of the elites 10 years from now uh, and still be throwing 98 miles an hour. Yeah, it remains to be seen, of course, because we know that teams understand that pitchers are a commodity that can fail pretty quickly, and sometimes their approach is, let's just get the most out of them while we can. It's not our problem if he gets hurt at a fairly young age, because we'll all just go out and find somebody else. But uh, yeah, this Spencer Strider is a really interesting kid. I think he's going to go next year too early for my liking, I have to say. Uh, I understand that he's got these terrific skills, but he is very young and he's uh, only got, what, about uh, 116 major league innings over the couple of years that he's been in the majors. He had a cup of coffee last year, and and this year he's currently at uh, 114 innings. So uh, it's not a horrendous workload, but of course we expect that he'll be pitching in the playoffs should Atlanta get there, and it looks like they will. Uh, by the end of the season, he could have 145 innings, something like that, including playoffs maybe a little bit more. 
I agree with you. I think that there are warning signs here whenever you have A, a pitcher who's this young, B, a pitcher who's getting this many innings at such a young age, and C, who throws so hard while his body may not quite be up to the strains of throwing that hard. Yeah, very definitely. I think I would be very cautious in bidding on Spencer Strider. I expect he's going to go a lot higher than I would want to to, to draft him next year. Well, staying on pitching, uh, the Dodgers got some mixed news. They got left-hander Clayton Kershaw back from the I.L. on Wednesday. He looked okay in a road start against the Mets. Uh, five innings, 74 pitches, I think 46 strikes, uh, one earned run, six strikeouts, and three walks. He walked in a run, which is a rarity for Kershaw in the first inning. I guess he was maybe just shaking off a little bit of the rust, but he retired his last 13 hitters. Uh, Los Angeles lost the game to the Mets, but uh, Kershaw was not involved in the decision. So pretty good news there. But uh, in the bad news department, Tony Gonsolin, who's having a fantastic year, was sent to the IL with what the team called a forearm strain. And Jock Thompson covering the story for playing time today. And apparently you have an update on Tony Gonsolin. Well, Tony Gonsolin, Elliot planned to go with a six-man rotation following the Kershaw's return. Uh, obviously, that has changed. Gonsolin has pitched a career high, 128 innings, 2.10 ERA. We don't know whether this is just uh, standard Dodger pitching maintenance or they caught something just in time or even the beginning of something serious. Uh, although the Dodgers don't sound too concerned, they have scheduled an MRI for for Friday. Um, they're not likely to rush Gonsolin back at this point. They've got five more weeks and they're well ahead in their division. So, don't count on on him for much fantasy help the rest of the way. Uh, the rest of the current rotation gets bumped back roughly to a, a five-man rotation in his pick projections. And at first, I kind of thought that maybe the Dodgers were pulling their Dodgery shenanigans with this pitching IL move. The, they have been known in the past, shall we say, to be willing to put a guy on the IL on the most spurious of reasons. But they did schedule that MRI, and now all of a sudden I think this looks more serious. Manager Dave Roberts said he's going to have the MRI, I think today, Friday, and he hasn't had a setback, but he hasn't been able to throw at all, and I think the Dodgers may actually be in trouble with Tony Gonsolin, and it'll be something that we need to watch. I don't expect to see much of him for the rest of the year, though you're right about that. The Dodgers are expected to activate reliever Blake Trinan from the I.L., where does Trinan fit into the Dodgers' bullpen down the stretch and into the playoffs? Well, Trinan has been shelled by a shoulder injury since mid-April after pitching just three innings, but he's reportedly throwing in the high 90s again during a six-inning uh, pitch minor league rehab, four runs allowed, uh, six strikeouts, one walk. Last year's version of Trinan, 1.99 ERA, 21 strikeouts minus walks, seven saves over 72 innings pitched. That was a fantasy difference maker. Um, now he needs to heads to a team that needs innings following several rotation injuries and like to some high leverage innings again. Closer Craig Kimbrell has been suboptimal, 4.14 ERA, 1.49 whip through 46 innings pitched. Uh, for most of the season, Kimbrell has been struggling. So if Trinan is right and can stay healthy, he'll likely take away some of Kimbrell's save opportunities down the stretch. Yeah, it could be a nice get in Fab this weekend, assuming he's called up by the weekend, and I think there'll be some bidding there, and there probably should be. I'm a little concerned. I don't know how you feel about uh, this six-inning minor league rehab. Four runs allowed in six innings is not something that fills me full of confidence. It's an ERA of six. Right, Uh, yeah, it's not not a whole lot, and I think I would 
Uh, I haven't gone back to look and see when those came. Did they all come in the first the first first outing, or were they spread out through all of the outings that he had? And uh, but but that's that's a lot of runs allowed for a minor league rehab stint. In Arizona, some interesting news: the Diamondbacks called up top prospect Corbin Carroll, and he started his career with a bang. Uh, Jake Crumpler for playing time today. What do we know about uh, Corbin Carroll and his auspicious start in the major leagues? Well, Corbin Carroll certainly did get off to a, to a wonderful start. Four hits in first 14 at-bats, five RBIs, a 286 batting average. So certainly a good beginning for Corbin Carroll. And I, I expect to find him in the lineup pretty steadily from here on out. Um, replaces uh, Jordan Luplo on the roster. He's played both corner outfield spots in his first two games. Uh, likely see him time across all, all the grass. Uh, other, he's going to force other outfielders, Jake McCarthy. Dalton Varsho and Alex Thomas into different offensive roles. McCarthy has been one of the most trusted bats in Arizona since his promotion and won't likely lose much playing time. He'll get extra reps at DH, but Varsho and Thomas will be pushed into platoon roles. Varsho will likely split at bats with Stone Garrett in the corner outfield, while Thomas will likely share a center field with McCarthy and Carroll, moving to the bench anytime the DH role is filled by someone other than McCarthy. So Varsho, Thomas, and Lupla will lose playing time to accommodate Carroll in the lineup. Uh, at the same time, uh, Caleb Smith was called up in the bullpen. Smith will take over for Holton as the team's second left-handed relief option. Smith was serviceable, posting a 4.47 ERA and 50 innings pitched prior to fracturing his right hand. And he and uh, Tyler Holton will exchange playing time as the rookie was demoted to AAA Reno. In San Diego, they, of course, made a very uh, high-profile trade with Milwaukee earlier this year to get Josh Hader, and I think they, of course, thought that they were solidifying their closer role and, and stabilizing their whole bullpen. But Josh Hader's been terrible, and now the question is, who's closing in San Diego? The manager there said uh, it was going to be a little bit of an open book, but on Tuesday, Nick Martinez got the save, his fourth save in a row. And uh, Josh Hader, nowhere to be seen. So this is a, an interesting story, and I wonder what we think about Josh Hader's prospects down the stretch. It is indeed an interesting story. And, but, but then after those, that save on Tuesday for Nick Martinez, Josh Hader got a save on Wednesday. So it's one of those situations that has to be a little bit in flux at the moment. Um, we'd already pegged Martinez for, for some of Josh Hader's uh, vacated ninth inning work, uh, but now it looks like... Uh, like Bob Melvin at least is is ready to uh, use Martinez in single-inning stints as the Padres are fighting for a playoff spot. For Martinez, despite a lack of dominance and a pedestrian 12% strikeout minus walk rate, he's pitched well whenever he's been needed this season, 3.02 ERA through 92 innings pitched. But Doug Dennis looked at Josh Hader's uh, skills a little bit earlier this week and listed him among the elite relievers still in the National League in terms of skills. He's been struggling the past month with, and, and the only reliever in that list of, of uh, Dennis's to be struggling, but 4.39 XCRA, 2.05 whip, 29% strikeout rate, 15% strikeout minus walks, and a 1.4 home runs per nine. And those things are all terrible, according to Hader's standards. But Hader's had some personal family issues to deal with. He's had a transition to San Diego that that's undoubtedly added to, to those kinds of issues. And he's had problems with home runs periodically in the past, but his overall underlying stats are still strong 
and have been strong throughout 2022. So it's really just a matter of time until he gets it going again. So based on numbers, once he gets the home runs under control, he may be just fine. It'll be a situation that San Diego has to kind of manage, I think, through this through September, because they can't afford to have Hader in there blowing saves. But at the same time, they undoubtedly need him and need him in good shape for the playoffs if they're going to go anywhere. Uh, so it'll, it'll be one to watch. But I think uh, certainly we see Nick Martinez will get some saves. But if Hader shows he's back, he's going to be back in the role fairly quickly. I don't expect that most fantasy managers will ditch Josh Hader at this point, but in some shallower leagues, it might feel the pressure to do that. And I think I might be grabbing up Josh Hader if he appeared on a waiver wire list in any of my leagues, because this Nick Martinez, you mentioned a a 318 ERA, which is pretty nice, but a 130 whip is not all that great for a closer and his expected ERA is over four which means that there's a certain amount of luck going on here. And indeed, when you look at his strand rate, it's 81%. Not completely out of the ordinary for for elite-level relievers, but I don't know that this is an elite-level skill set. He's striking out uh, under nine batters per nine, so he's not getting a strikeout per inning, which is something that Hayter can do almost in his sleep. And he's been a little better the last little while, but his command ratio is only a little bit above two because he also walks a fair number of guys. I think this Nick Martinez looks to me like a ticking time bomb. And if Hader can get his personal life sorted out, I was unaware of that until Doug reported it. So that's uh, that's something to consider. These guys are human beings after all. But I think that uh, of the two, I think I'd still rather have Josh Hader, notwithstanding the role and the manager's decision. Yeah, I think I agree with you. The, the problem, of course, for a manager who has Josh Hader, as I do in the league, is do you is, is when when do you put him in there? You know, he goes in and blows up, and then you decide, well, I better take him out. He's ruining my ERA and WHIP. And then the next night, he comes out and gets a save, and, and it's a clean inning. So it's one of those very very shaky and difficult situations for a fantasy manager. It definitely is all of that, and. Uh the damage that Hader's done to his own ERA is sort of mirrored by the damage he's doing to his fantasy manager's ERAs because, of course, there's very few innings there, but lots of earned runs and lots of base runners. Uh, Let's move on to Chicago. The Cubs put uh, first base, third baseman Patrick Wisdom on the 10-day IL. He sprained his finger. They recalled uh, infielder, outfielder Alfredo Rivas from AAA. Tom Kephart covers the Cubs for playing time today. Nick, uh, what are the ramifications in Chicago for this move? Wisdom has recently split time between the two corner infield positions after being the primary third baseman for the bulk of the season. And the first base playing time he loses will go to first baseman catcher J.P.J. Higgins and to Rivas, and has lost third base playing time allocated to multi-positional Christopher Morrell and Zach McKinstry. Uh, Winston is a low-contact power source, a B.A. liability. Uh, replacements will likely produce better batting average with less power. Yeah, I think that describes Patrick Wisdom really well. Not much uh, not much in the way of batting average. He's going to swing and miss a lot. I, I remember seeing earlier this year that he had the highest strikeout rate in Cubs history or something like that. He was striking out half the time. I don't think it's quite that bad since, but yeah, definitely a swing and miss guy. And those swing and miss guys, they're tough on fantasy managers because you want the home runs, but you sure don't want that 0 for 40 streak that he might ring up and, and take your batting average down two points. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's one of those uh, one of those things that, yes, this guy looks good. I want to get some home runs, but if he goes into a bad streak, he can hurt your BA very quickly. 
Speaking of batting average liabilities with good power, uh, Pittsburgh recalled outfielder Jack Suwinski from AAA and optioned outfielder Bly Madras back to AAA. Rick Green covers the Pirates for playing time today. What's going on with Jack Suwinski, another strikeout specialist? Jack Suwinski, 198 batting average, 288 on base, 428 uh, slugging in 72 games with the Pirates, but it provided lots of power. 14 home runs. And even though he's been in the minors, he still leads National League rookies in home runs. So we expect Pittsburgh to give him plenty of opportunities in the outfield during the final weeks of the season. They don't have anywhere to go. So uh, Jackson Winsley's a guy that might give you a few home runs, but as we were just saying, the batting average could be uh, could be really, really bad. Yes, it could. I was just looking through his... Baseball HQ metrics, he does draw 10% walks, but he strikes out 35% of the time this year. His hit rate is very low. I think that's probably because he hits 42% fly balls and only 16% line drives. So there's not a lot of opportunity for him to get hits. He he doesn't run spectacularly well either, and he's got 40-plus percent ground balls. So a lot of cans of corn to the outfield, a lot of easy ground balls to the infield, and that is how you get a 197 batting average with uh, expected batting average a little higher 234 and actually nick i think if he was hitting 234 a lot of people would be a lot happier with him because then you've got 14 home runs with a non-deadly batting average right very definitely and that 198 batting average certainly is deadly Uh, you know it might be worth if if you need home runs down the stretch it might be worth doing some real research into jack sabinski and seeing where those home runs have been hit uh, had they all come in uh, in fairly easy home run ballparks like Cincinnati? And then asking the question, how many more games is Suwinski going to play in those kind of ballparks? Uh, so, some some uh, under the under the uh, radar research might be worth it on Jack Suwinski for this final month. Uh, 22% home run per fly ball rate, which is kind of high for league average, but is not extraordinarily high for true power hitters. So it's an interesting thing to watch. It's one of those situations where... You know, if you're four home runs short of picking up three points in the category, you might have to hold your nose and grab Jack Swinski because we have to assume at this stage in the season, most fantasy teams have built up a pretty good denominator of at-bats. So even if he comes up and goes, you know, hits 150 or 190 or whatever it is he's going to hit, yeah, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but he hasn't got the potential to drag down your batting average quite as much as earlier in the season. So it might be something, if you need power, might be a place to look. Uh, in New York, the Mets placed third baseman Brett Beatty on the IL. Phil Hertz covers the Mets for playing time today. What's the upshot here? Beatty has a torn UCL in his right thumb. Uh, that's an injury that typically takes five, about five weeks to heal, and that would mean he'll miss most, if not all, of the remainder of the season. Uh, so as a result, we're dropping his projected playing time to 5%. At least initially, Eduardo Escobar will get most of the playing time at third base. But in the near future, the Mets expect to have Luis Guillaume back from this IL stint. When that happens, it's likely that Guillaume will start against righties, Escobar against lefties. Uh, they brought up Terrence Gore from AAA. He'll mostly be used as a pinch runner and occasionally in the field late in games. 
When I read that, I thought to myself, Terrence Gore is still around? Gosh, it seems like he's been playing in the big leagues since the 1980s. <laughs> I know he hasn't been, but gosh, it seems like he's been around for a long time. And finally, Nick uh, Washington shut down right-hander Cade Cavalli for two weeks, is what they're saying now, uh, due to shoulder inflammation. Phil Hurts for playing time today again. I don't think it's hugely important, but somebody's got to get Cavalli's innings in Washington. Who's the next man up? Well, right now we've cut his projected innings in half down to 4.5% going forward. That number may be optimistic, even though the Nationals say the shoulder isn't uh, issue isn't a major concern. But to give him we're in, be in the middle of September by the time he comes back, fantasy managers shouldn't be surprised if he makes no more than a token appearance down the stretch. Uh, and I'm not sure, does it really matter who Washington puts out there? Uh, you're not likely to get many wins from them anyway at this point in the season. Uh, so probably his replacement, and I'm not sure at this point who that will be, uh, is not someone you want, would want to grab. The Baseball HQ depth charts have Annabelle Sanchez down for a little bit of starting action. Mackenzie Gore, who was traded over, might get a look later in the season. Uh, Corey Abbott's got a couple of percentage points. And Paolo Espino maybe solidifies his spot in the rotation with a 422 ERA and 129 whip. Not the worst pitching stats in the world, maybe rosterable in certain contexts, but uh, certainly no enormous fantasy help there. Well, very definitely. So but we hope that Kate Cavalli is, uh, is just a minor injury and that he will be back soon and able to resume his, his uh, major league career without a whole lot of problem. Kate Cavalli's got a 14 and a half ERA, although his expected ERAs are about 440 or something like that. So, uh, even when he comes back, he's not the solution to most people's problems either, I don't think. <laughs> Absolutely, right. <laughs> All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, PD. Happy long weekend for the Euro American listeners. Yeah, and uh, well, actually, it'll be a long weekend for us too. I think Labor Day's a stat holiday here in Canada, so we'll all have the end of summer to celebrate. The official end of summer, the unofficial end of summer, I suppose it is. Uh, I think summer ends on September twenty-first when autumn begins. But let's start in Baltimore, whatever the weather's like down there. Uh, Nick and I earlier talked about the call-up of super prospect Corbin Carroll by Arizona and hot on the heels of that announcement comes news of another top prospect getting the call as the Orioles have summoned infielder Gunnar Henderson from AAA and optioned infielder Tyler Nevin to AAA. Uh, Ryan Williams covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Where does the Gunnar Henderson fit into the lineup of what has been a surprisingly competitive Baltimore squad? Yeah, very, uh, very interesting move here by the Orioles to call up their top prospect here, try to get their best team on the field right in the stretch run here. You like you like to see it. Uh, it looks like uh, Henderson started at third base in his major league debut on Wednesday uh, with Ramon Urias serving as the DH. Henderson's a shortstop by trade, but I think we're going to see him all around the infield, uh, playing third, some second short, maybe even first, probably sitting against uh, top left-handed pitchers to start with, but uh, he'll be, uh, he'll be bouncing around the infield and taking playing time from probably a couple of people, Kyle Stowers and Taryn Vavra and uh, Rutner Odor. Uh, Stowers and Vavra both sat uh, in Henderson's first game and probably 
turn into some kind of not exactly a platoon, but a part-time outfield arrangement as uh, the Orioles sort of mix and match pieces there. Back on the infield, uh, Odor looks like he's most likely the odd man out here, although he's not going to be completely bereft of opportunities between second base and the occasional DH uh, appearance. Uh, so we're really going to have to watch the next few lineups uh, from the Orioles to see exactly how they put this uh, <laughs> back to your original point, uh, you know, a suddenly surprisingly deep and versatile roster to, uh, to, to use here. So uh, we had been ramping up Henderson's playing time for the last uh, projected playing time for the last couple of weeks as it, became aware that it became apparent that he was going to get a call, but uh, we may still have a little bit of debiting and cleanup to do as we see who the real losers are. I was thinking to myself of using the phrase embarrassment of riches and boy, who'd have thought that at the start of this season, that the Orioles would have too many good players to try to figure out what to do with. Uh, certainly some of the guys that you mentioned, Stowers and Vavra, they're not like world beaters, but they were doing all right in, in their limited roles in Baltimore. So I guess they're, they have a lot of options. And because of uh, Gunnar Henderson's really high profile, he's going to get every chance in the first week or two. He's, they're going to give him a, a fairly long leash, I should think. But if he goes, you know, two for 40 or something like that, they're obviously not going to be able to stomach that if they uh, still harbor the belief that they can make the uh, playoffs, notwithstanding whatever uh, Fangraph says about their minimal playoff odds, which they explained pretty interestingly this week. Uh, Ryan Williams at Baseball HQ also reported that Baltimore is expected to add first baseman Jesus Aguilar. He got signed to a made, uh, minor league contract on uh, late August, I think, and left-hander D.L. Hall is going to be called up as well when rosters expand. What's uh, going on with Jesus Aguilar, first of all? Yeah, so we we took a stab at allocating him, I think it's 35% of the projected playing time at third base. That primarily was the playing time that uh, we mentioned Tyler Nevin earlier getting sent down as the corresponding move for Henderson, but that was primarily Nevin's chunk of playing time uh, between first base and DH. So we moved that over to Aguiar. Um, and he's probably going to mostly back up uh, Ryan Mountcastle at first base and do a little bit of DHing uh, against lefties and, uh, you know, some, some pinch hitting as well. We mentioned earlier that Henderson's unlikely to play against lefties. So the way the jigsaw puzzle works, Aguiar could get some of the, some of those plate appearances. Um, as far as Hall, the Orioles had announced a few weeks back, I think in early August, that they were both for innings limits and to get him some work in the majors, they were going to transition him to a relief role for September with a uh, with the intent of calling him up. So this is another case where we were not surprised by this. We were forecasting that, uh, that role for him. So he picks up a token couple of percentage of, uh, of, of innings here and will slot into this bullpen, which also is uh, theme alert turned into something that's uh, – remarkably versatile and useful over the last couple of months. Are we clear yet whether this is a permanent move for DL Hall or whether they, in the long run, want him to be a starter? I believe, having not seen anything to the contrary, I think they still want him to be a starter, and this is about workload management combined with, uh, you, you know, get, getting him into a place where he can uh, help, help out and get a taste of the majors in the, in the stretch run here. Clearly, you know, there's there's a lot of elements to this, but what you know, you were talking about Fangraphs being pessimistic about the team's playoff chances, and I, I'm not in their front offices' heads to know whether or not they agree with that. But I think the 
spate of moves here with Henderson Hall, et cetera, certainly indicates that they they at least see value in calling these kids up and having them play meaningful meaningful September games and being in meaningful situations, you know, for a team that's not just playing out the string, but is actually playing for something. And, you know, given the way the city has responded to this team this summer, um, I, I think it's one way to sort of end the season on, on a high note down there, whether or not they actually punch a wild card ticket or not. It's kind of a win-win for the Orioles, isn't it? Because if these young guys come up and do well, hey, that's a win because they it helps them get to the playoffs. I don't know how far they'll go in the playoffs, but if they make the playoffs, gosh, who'd have bet it, as I said earlier, who'd have thought that was possible as we came into the season? And if they don't, actually do that much good. As you said, they're getting their feet wet in the major leagues, getting a taste of big league action, and that can't help but pay some dividends down the road even as soon as next year for guys like Henderson and Hall in particular. Uh, Bad news for Houston, Ray, and a lot of fantasy managers. The Astros put right-handed starter Justin Verlander on the 15-day IL. He had a calf injury. It looked kind of weird. I saw the highlight when he came out, and it it was just an odd looking thing with the, him obviously favoring his calf of all the things that a pitcher can have go wrong. Jock Thompson covers the Astros for playing time today. What's the upshot here? Boy, it's stunning that this injury came along and finally derailed Verlander just because it's been so surprising to me, at least not that he's been so effective, but that he's been so durable, uh, you know, coming back from the long absence this year. And he's been, you know, he's just been fantastic and a workhorse for the Astros. So uh, the, the the feedback from the Astros medical team seemed to be that they were relatively pleased or unconcerned with this. Uh, but as we've been saying for a couple of weeks now, I think they're going to be careful with him, you know, with an eye on October and make sure he's good and ready till he comes back. And, you know, maybe the outings will be shorter even when he does. So it's hard to count on Verlander for much over the next month from a fantasy perspective, even if he does come back in, you know, 10 to 15 days. Uh, And as far as how the rotation shuffles, don't forget that they've been sort of flipping back and forth between a six-man rotation anyway. So this is probably, this probably just becomes a five-man for a while without Verlander, uh, which basically means that Christian Javier, who had been uh, swung to the bullpen, probably swings back next time they need that rotation spot. The Astros also called up a pitching prospect. Uh, what do we know about Hunter Brown? Yeah, he's a you know, interesting prospect for the Astros. Uh, we expect him to make his debut uh, right after rosters expand here. So uh, we're not sure he's going to start, but he's going to at least be providing depth on that staff. He was leading the uh, Pacific Coast League in ERA and strikeouts, uh, but had also been working in some long relief outings lately. I'm not totally sure whether that was a... Uh, innings management thing, or maybe it was a, uh, you know, preparation for the way they expected to use him after his September call-up. Uh, but there is, you know, really good stuff there. Sh- stop me if you've heard this before. Uh, shaky control. Uh, but, you know, he's going to be at least ready for multi-inning relief work as he, you know, tries to make that, uh, you know, anytime I hear top-shelf stuff, but shaky control, I, you know, immediately start making Nukalush comparisons. So he's going to, uh, he's going to come up and see if he can uh, figure out where home plate is. I noticed that Baseball HQ's analysts gave uh, Brown a little bit of an innings bump when Verlander went on the IL, but uh, still, I don't think that Brown is somebody we need to be targeting in our fab bids this weekend. No, I don't think so. I think there's mostly uh, lower leverage work and staff protection, 
you know, as the Astros manage the workload of the rest of the rotation, again, looking toward October, he's going to be one of the guys who picks up some of the slack, but probably not in a predictable or particularly valuable uh, role. The Yankees surprised some analysts on Thursday. They called up a shortstop prospect, but it wasn't who we thought it might be. It was Oswaldo Peraza. Who figures to lose the playing time, and why Oswaldo Peraza, do you think? Yeah, it really seems like the Yankees are trying to shake off the doldrums that have been plaguing them for so much of the second half. Uh, they dropped four out of seven this week to the Athletics and Angels, which is you know, never a good sign. Um, this particular move seemed like it was closely related to an, a costly error by uh, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa at shortstop the other night and a lost loss in Anaheim, uh, which opened the door for Shohei Otani to beat the uh, Yankees with a three-run homer. Um, so they were once up 15 and a half game in that games in that division. And now it's down to just six. So in the midst of, a, you know, I, I don't want to call this a budding collapse, mostly because I don't want to, uh, you know, stop the momentum of whatever's happening, but uh, <laughs> reverse, uh, reverse jinx. <laughs> exactly. But they're going to, uh, they're going to turn to Peraza and it's been maybe stabilized shortstop, put a little, uh, little spark in the lineup, you know, all year long when the rest of this offense was humming, they were, um, they were able to carry Kiner Falefa's noodle bat and let him just worry about fielding the position. But uh, the, the the overall offense has cooled off considerably. If uh, if Kiner Falefa's making errors, then he's not adding much value at all. So they're going to try something different here. So what do we expect from Peraza? Yeah, he's a legitimate prospect. He was number three in the uh, in a good Yankees organization. Uh, you know, on our preseason ranking list. Um, he just missed our uh, midseason top fifty, uh, but back in the preseason top hundred, he was uh, he was number fifty three. So he was in that range, uh, and his profile is you know there's power and speed there, and you know, legitimate shortstop defense. He's not faking that position or anything. Uh, he hit uh, two fifty nine, three twenty nine, four forty eight, which is a seven 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 OPS uh, in. Triple A this year with 34 walks and 100 strikeouts, which it which isn't you know great plate control, but certainly doesn't stand out as bad in this day and age either. Uh, and he was already on the 40 man roster, which made it a little bit easier to uh, to make this move without having to uh, bump somebody else off of there. So that's uh, yeah, that that that's how the, uh, the the seas have sort of parted for him here. Also, 33 stolen bases against only two caught stealings, which is going to attract fantasy interest, I'm sure. If he plays this week, he'll be eligible this weekend for fab bidding. And if you can pick up some points in stolen bases, you could do worse. Uh, Do you think this says anything about the Yankees' attitude towards Anthony Volpe, who's really their number one prospect? He's a shortstop, and they didn't choose him. They chose uh, Oswaldo Peraza instead. Is this bad news for Volpe and his fantasy managers? I, I don't think for the long term, you know, much like I said earlier, I'm not in the head of the front office here, but the combination of already being on the 40 man roster and a very solid defensive rotation reputation, which is, I think, primarily what they're looking for here, probably is what steered them in the direction of Peraza. Basically, none of that I take as a knock on Volpe long term. So I, you know, I, I well, I think it's a little bit surprising that Peraza arrives first. I, uh, I would not overreact to that either. 
Well, speaking of the Yankees, one of the prizes they gave up in the Frankie Montas deal with Oakland was left-hander Ken Waldachuk, and he's been called up by Oakland with right-hander Zach Jackson going on to the 15-day IL. Jake Crumpler covers the A's for playing time today. Where do we see Waldachuk fitting in as Oakland basically plays out the string? Yeah, he had made four starts in uh, the minors for the for the Athletics since the trade, and you know, he hung up a 338 ERA over 19 innings uh, with a you know 27% strikeout rate. And the Athletics apparently said, "Okay, good enough. Let's go. <laughs> Time to come on up. You're better, you're at least as good as what we have on this on this staff right now." Um, but, and that strikeout rate is actually a bit down from what it was with his time in the Yankee organization. So uh, it's not totally clear to me whether the A's were making any sort of adjustments with them, with, with Wallachuk, or if that's just a small sample size quirk or uh, or how to interpret that. I will defer to our uh, our minor league uh, analysts who, have, who would have eyes on him. But uh, he's going to slot right in the rotation uh, with a first start against the Nationals, which is, you know, a pretty good draw. Um, and... He probably bumps. It looks like Adrian Martinez had made a couple of starts, but it now looks like he probably slides into a swingman long relief role. Although roles, I'm sure, in Oakland will be very fluid in a uh, you know day by day definition over the uh, next month of the season as they play out the string. Certainly, will be interesting to see if Waldachuk. Uh, handles himself well because he's obviously angling for a slot next year full-time in the rotation, joining perhaps the other guy who came over from New York, J.P. Sears, who's already pitched a game and uh, has had some earlier success in New York. The last time I checked, I think his ERA was well under 2, like under 2.5 or something, and his estimators weren't far off that, uh, maybe a run or so higher, and a 111 whip, so J.P. Sears is getting the job done. Maybe Oakland was on to something with this trade. Getting rid of Frankie Montas and picking up these two young men. Meanwhile, Jackson, uh, Zach Jackson, who went on the IL, was having an impressive debut season in his own right, getting some high leverage work and had a league-leading 26 holds, which is always a, a fairly decent sign for the future that the team trusts him in those leverage situations. What's the latest on Zach Jackson? Yeah, and a bullpen that's had an awful lot of churn. He's been really the one constant this year, but... uh you know, maybe related from a <laughs> from leading on him pretty heavily. It's now right shoulder inflammation that uh, shuts him down for a little while. Uh, but you know, tip it a cap to him. He's pitched uh, 48 innings with a three ERA and a and a really healthy 33 percent strikeout rate. You mentioned the league leading holds total, which you know for a team of Oakland's caliber is no small achievement either. Uh, that probably means that AJ Puck is now the default primary save source there at least until something else changes because it's been puck a couple of times this year and, you know, in at least shares of the job and uh, he has not taken it and run with it, but he's, uh, he's teed up as uh, the guy at the back end right now, I think. You mentioned a 33% strikeout rate for Oakland this year for Jackson, also a 16% walk rate. So that's a, that's a bit of a fly in the ointment. I think that we have to be at least aware of before we anoint him as some kind of future closer. He's going to definitely have to get his command settled down. Uh, Oakland also called up a, a familiar name. Outfielder Christian Pache rejoins the team. They sent down a corner infielder named David McKinnon. Uh, what goes on with Christian Pache and what kind of role can we expect from him for the next five weeks or so? Yeah, he went down for two months, as it turned out, after 
really just not hitting worth a lick uh, in a pretty extended look from the A's to start the season. And then in those two months, uh, 171 plate appearances down in AAA, he hit 249 with a 298 OBP and a 389 slug. That all calculates out to a 67 WRC plus, which is 33% worse than league average in AAA. So yeah, he's still not hitting worth anything. Um, you know, the, the, the glove is going to keep him employed, but he's a long way from being anything resembling a fantasy asset until he manages to make himself at least closer to average at the plate. For now, he replaces David McKinnon on the roster, and I'm sure he'll get some more run in center field because of the glove, and he'll probably bat ninth and hang up a lot of over threes and over fours. Oakland also tried pretty much everybody in the Bay Area in their starting rotation, possibly including Eno Saris, but they demoted another one of their starters. Jared Koenig was not impressive. They recalled right-hander Adrian Martinez, so it looks like that situation is still in a bit of flux. Yeah, we mentioned Martinez earlier. You know, he had made a couple of starts earlier, then he got sent down. Now he's back, but with the call-up of Waldachuk, he's probably back in a swingman role. You know, that's just you know, all written in pencil at this point. He could, of course, be tapped to make a start at any time, but it does not look like he's in the rotation at the moment. Yeah, Martinez, 528, 135 decimals in six starts this year. Not many strikeouts, quite a few home runs. It's a bad combination even in Oakland. Uh, Moving on, Tampa put left-handed starter Shane McClanahan on the 15-day IL because of a left shoulder impingement. Chris Olson covers the Tampa Rays for playing time today. How does this affect their pitching staff? Maybe not as much as it looked like initially. I don't know if you saw the video of uh, McClanahan warming up for his start and then walking off, uh, walking off the mound in just absolute despair uh, and you know, waving his shoulder around. It looked like something you know catastrophic. It did. Happened. You're right. Yep. But uh, Kevin Cash now says they're optimistic that McClanahan will not miss much time. Probably about two weeks to start off. You know, don't get me wrong. That's a fair chunk of the remaining season, but. You know, given what it looked like could have happened there, any return at all for fantasy managers in the latter weeks of the season, and certainly, certainly for the Rays heading into October, is uh, you know is relatively good news here. Um, so they're calling it a best case scenario right now. That he's going to do the whole get a cortisone shot, try to get the swelling out of there, and and see what it feels like in a couple of weeks. So uh, you know, there's certainly a few more hurdles to clear there, but potentially uh, less damaging news than originally thought. I never understand what they mean by impingement. It doesn't sound serious, but who knows? It's something that I guess our injury analyst at BaseballHQ.com will explain in a little more detail in the uh, big hurt column that comes out regularly at the site. Uh, Even 15 days is three starts that McClanahan won't get. Who will get them? You know, it's the Rays, so... I don't know everybody who's on first, you know, what, what, what are those guys, right? Yeah, maybe <laughs> but, uh, Eno again. Maybe Eno, exactly. I, the, the night that McClanahan got scratched just, you know, minutes before he was supposed to start, it was Sean Armstrong who came out for the first three innings and led a, uh, led a bullpen game. I think that I think they threw a shutout that night, if I'm not mistaken, actually, with, uh, you know, their usual flotilla of pitchers. Um, but we might see, you know, Luis Patino has been up and down. He was injured early in the season um, and has, you know, has been healthy, but been riding the AAA shuttle. So we might see him. We could see Josh Fleming. Uh, Fleming has, you know, been hanging some ugly numbers in 
uh, at least in small MLB samples this year, but they're still better, better from a skills perspective than Patino. Again, Patino, uh, you know, was, was a well-regarded prospect who has been hampered by some health issues. So we may not have seen the real Patino at all this year. Uh, and then there's also Calvin Foucher, who has been also riding the shuttle and has been some something of a depth arm as the 11th or 17th or whatever it is guy on that staff for you know a few weeks at a time here and there. We might see him drop in with the expanded rosters. Uh, no fantasy value for him, but obviously with the Rays, if Fleming or Patino gets the commitment of making the you know three or maybe more starts with McClanahan out, you know there are there might be some fantasy utility there, although as mentioned with their ratios risk as well. Luis Patino, I remember coming into the season, boy, he was a touts darling. He was on every sleeper list you could find. He was drafted much higher than probably he would have been if he wasn't getting all this ink. And it certainly didn't work out that well for him or for anybody who drafted him. Uh, Tampa, meanwhile, also loses infielder Brandon Lau again. He goes to the 10-day IL retroactive to earlier this week. He's got a right triceps contusion. It's a bruise by any other name. He got hit by a pitch. What will the Rays do to fill Lau's latest IL stint? Yeah, whoever's got the Brandon Lau voodoo doll this year is really doing a uh, really doing a number with it. He's uh, you know seemingly has not been healthy all year, and it's been quite the uh, quite the variety of maladies too. This time, you know, as you say, the, the Rays have gotten sort of <laughs> they've gotten a lot of practice trying to replace him, right? Uh, so this time it's Vidal Bruhan who gets the call up, and he ends up in that middle infield mix along with you know we've been through all these names before too, Yu Chang and Isaac Paredes, Taylor Walls who has been over at shortstop, but, you know, Wander Franco may yet return sometime in early to mid-September, which would free walls up to get into that second base mix. So uh, day-to-day proposition among four or five options here. And it's really a shame for anybody who had Brandon Lau on any of the rosters, including me, but even not counting the uh, the injuries, he was only on pace for about 25 home runs, which sounds good, but he had 39 last year, and I think that's what a lot of people were expecting was, you know, 30-ish plus 10 or 12 stolen bases. He's only got one this year. So Brandon Lau, was, I mean, the injuries have clearly played a role in it, but Brandon Lau also just was not really producing to the level we hoped. And when he gets back, maybe he will. Who knows? I'd certainly rather have him than than a lot of the available free agents in most fantasy leagues, that's for sure. In Houston, the Astros outfielder Chaz McCormick has now missed three or four consecutive games with a dislocated right pinky finger. Doesn't sound like much, especially when you use the word pinky, but uh, it is a serious thing because it, it affects how well you can hold on to the bat. Uh, how is Houston responding with McCormick not able to play? Yeah, amid some of the attrition in that outfield with you know, Michael Brantley in particular being out, McCormick has you know, quietly become sort of a pretty important part of that lineup. Uh, so they're, they're missing him right now and are certainly hoping he can be back quickly. Um the other options, you know, there's there's a big gap with Brantley out and McCormick out between, you know, those two guys and what else they have. Uh, Jake Myers has been completely futile at the plate. Uh, they tried Trey Mancini in left field earlier this week. Uh, David Hensley got to do some DHing because don't forget Jordan Alvarez, the everyday DH, has also been uh, playing through some injury and been you know greatly diminished of weight. So it's a little bit of a challenge to score some runs in 
uh, in, in Houston right now. And right now, so we've bumped up the playing time in the outfield for Mancini and Mauricio Dubon, who's sort of the uh, resident 10th man, jack of all trades, because uh, th- those guys are going to have to play because if McCormick's out, my they've I think Myers has played his way out of this picture for a little while, and it's going to have to be Mancini and Dubon. Good news for Trey Mancini, owners who had him full-time, uh, played appearances in Baltimore, then he gets traded to what looks like a bench role of some kind in Houston. Now he's going to probably be pretty close to full-time again. And Mauricio Dubon, not the greatest player in the world, but certainly a lot of versatility. If he's available in your league and you're worried about filling a, a spot, I checked the other day because I have him on one roster, and I think he's eligible at literally every position except catcher and pitcher, of course, but that doesn't matter. So if you need somebody to fill in and you think you're going to need somebody all month to fill in here and fill in there, Mauricio Dubon might make a sneaky, decent fab pickup for this week weekend. And finally, I don't know if this is even news that we should be reporting, Ray, but I'll try it anyway. Kansas City is going to recall right-hander Daniel Mengden uh, when rosters expand. He actually started Thursday's game. Is this uh, as much of a nothing burger as I think? I think probably. He got that start on Thursday, but it didn't go well. Uh, He didn't get out of the third inning, gave up three hits, three runs. Uh, Looks like he's going to hold Zach Greinke's rotation spot for a little while. Uh, we don't have a timetable on Granky, but as far as I've seen, I don't believe they've declared him out for the year yet. Um, he might need to come back and just get a couple of uh, token farewell starts uh, in front of those seven Kansas City fans before the season's over. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> for, for, for now, it's Mengden get, getting a slight innings bump from us at the at the expense of Granky, and we'll continue to refine that based on Granky's timetable. Also, there's Max Castillo, who we've talked about, Jackson Cower, who I, we expect to get some starts later uh, later in September. Um Back to Mengden, he was actually pretty good earlier in the season out of the bullpen for Kansas City. So, I mean, maybe the best news would be that he goes back to that role. They were working him as a starter in AAA, and it was not going nearly as well. So um, maybe maybe the uh, the best thing that could happen for the Royals and for Mengden is that they uh, – Plug plug him in that middle in that middle relief role for an inning or two at a time, and his stuff plays up there. Ray, thanks a million for helping us out, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great, thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter Podcast. He'll be coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, I want to remind you of yet another great article at BaseballHQ.com. In facts and flukes performance validation, there's been a lot of work going on. The HQ analysts working overtime and reviewing performances by Matt Manning, Kevin Gausman, JT Railmuto, Jake Cronenworth, Starling Marte, Craig Kimbrell, and at least a dozen more just this week alone. Also, please don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's a Friday two-expert full edition featuring expert interviews with James Anderson, Rotowire's prospects expert, and Toby Guerin from the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. Plus, we'll have all our other usual great stuff, our National and American League news analyses, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's James Anderson and Toby Guerin next Friday on a Friday two-expert full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter podcast. Rob, welcome back to part two. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, I'm tired on part one, but I'm ready to do part two. <laughs> well, I know it's a, it can be an ordeal here, uh, but let's talk about your 2023 early draft that you ran kind of in conjunction with your pull hitter podcast, I really enjoyed this because it really sounded like every draft I've ever been in when guys were at the table. And, uh, you know, it's been so long since I've been at a table with the shutdowns and the COVID and all the rest of it, that it was really enjoyable to listen to. And that was on your August 18th edition. You and some of your friends got together. I think it might be the earliest draft I've ever heard of. You guys are in August and you're drafting the subsequent year, but you did seven rounds of a draft champions format league for 2023. Where did you get this idea? Uh, yeah, just to comment first to, uh, you know, it just felt great to like actually kind of get, 14 other people to say yeah like i'll you know we'll make time and do it one night it was just fascinating and i was really happy to just to just to get inside even if it's a zoom chat and not just you know live in person it's just really it was really great but just i was just listening to a lot of podcasts and just as i normally do and it was julio rodriguez was the main spur because it was as he was gaining steam and becoming this massive player this massive difference maker it was just like i wonder where he's gonna go next year where do you think he's gonna go next year and i would hear Derek van Rijpen, you know saris and jeff erickson ex fred zinke you know hey you know where would you put him next year you know what pick so i said you know what let's find out where he's gonna go next year you know so i just thought it was good to uh reach out to several of my closest friends and players that i respect in the nfbc and uh you know kind of um kind of see if they wanted to get it started now. And I know they, they I know the first draft that's usually done, it's like October. Um, and it's the premature draftulation that uh, I think Todd Zola <laughs> and Derek Van Riper and yeah. many others. Um, uh, so I, I didn't mean to like, um, I'm not meaning to try to best them. I just thought it was, it was the right kind of moment too. a lot of uh, players in the league who do podcasts. They thought it was perfect timing too to maybe fill in some content where during in season it might get a little dry. So it was, it was just perfect time to just, you know, get together and do it. Well, I recognized your name, of course, and Ryan Bloomfield is in the draft from Baseball HQ. I think I was in a TGFBI league or a Raz Slam league with Ryan Roof once, and I know him from Twitter and from online. Uh, who are your other drafters? Yeah, so Ryan Roof, like you mentioned, um, works for RotoWire, handles the closer charts there, but just um, not just a closer specialist. He's really, really good player. Jason DuPont um, is a high-stakes NFPC player, um, plays really all the leagues above the main event. He doesn't even play the main event anymore, but he is the life of the party. Um, everywhere you go, he's one of the first gentlemen I met in New, in New York, just uh, really, really super energetic. Uh, we have Steve Weimer, who is uh, also an analyst for Baseball HQ right now. Um, he's just one of the sharpest, if not one of the best players in the league, um, in the world right now. Uh, he finished second in the overall, actually in the D.C twice since 2015 he's won 29 leagues and cashed in nearly 70 percent of his leagues pretty wild um jake hausker from the rotosaurus pod he's um overall auction championship winner from 2019 uh mr michael mager who is 22nd all-time in career earnings in the nfbc and he's always a thorn in my live nfbc main leagues really good player uh miss jenny butler um i actually teamed up with her last year um in a league we did really well and we came in second really super sharp mind um in fantasy and she's never never afraid to mix it up uh, she's was really down to do this draft um 
Bubba, Bubba and Trekking, uh, also known as Casey Bubba, the Bubba uh, Bench with Bubba podcast, also another baseball HQ analyst. Um, he was in the draft. Uh, I love Bubba, just a great guy, and just also really getting way a lot better in uh, the fantasy world. Oh boy. Um, see, Mr. Brian Slack, uh, just another brilliant baseball mind, seven main event titles and over 50 top three finishes uh, in the NFBC. James Anderson from Rotowire, not just a prospect guy. Don't let him fool you to thinking that. He's a super sharp uh, analyst, very transparent, too, which I love about James. He's just fantastic people. Um, Ryan Venancio, he's a rather young buck in the round like me, but Super sharp, analytical mind. Uh, also fellow New Jerseyan and uh, vegetarian like myself. Um, Zach Waxman. He has over 100 NFBC leagues. Uh, really high volume player. But he won the overall online auction championship last year. And uh, Patrick, he has more drafts boards than the NFBC has in their data site. He knows more about your teams than you do. Trust me. He, he, he has a draft book on every player in every league that he gets into, he uses it as part of his uh, draft evaluation. And John Fishy, the last guy, another high-volume draft player, just a really good competitor, kind of life of the party kind of guy. So, yeah, that was it. That was a uh, full league, a lot of, lot of great players and a lot of big characters. Since you mentioned James Anderson, I'll just take advantage of this opportunity to tell our listeners that James will be our guest expert next week on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. You mentioned that the early draft was meant to start us thinking about player values for next year, but also for the last month of this season. How much and how do you think next year's prices would inform this year's rest of season values? Well, I think that a lot of us, um, and I think a couple of people noted it in the draft, I know it's the way I prepared, that we kind of used a hybrid of this year's current stats with rest of season projections either from you know Derek Hardy or Steamer or Baseball HQ so I think that was the lean I had to it that a lot of people were using the rest of season projections as um somewhat of their mix to their player evaluation um and I know that um you know I I like to look at second half a lot of uh, the second half data um from previous years that that influenced my next year's um, decisions. Um, I feel like there's a lot to be had in the second year um, data. So I feel like a lot of a lot of us use that that lean. So that's why I think that it kind of you know can fill in for the rest of the season values as well. And you'll be able to use some of those early 2023 picks in your boons and banes a little later. We're going to shift the focus to next year values. Uh, why did you do only seven rounds? You guys were even talking. You were racing through the rounds so quickly <laughs> that uh, I heard a couple of guys say, well, let's do a couple more, two, three more. And you, I think you got through seven rounds in right around an hour, which is some kind of, it's got to be some kind of Guinness Book of World Records. I was Right. I was fascinated by it, Patrick. And we were all so shocked in our Twitter chat. We had a group chat and we were all saying, um, you know, oh, well, we're going to be up till 2 or 3 a.m., you know, and uh, we're, we're all like, how are we going to sleep the next day? And um, but we were just really in the, in a flow, especially with no clock, you know, no draft for, uh, software in front of you. You know, everyone was just making really, really good picks. And yeah, I think I think um, I was ready to go more. You know, I think, like you said, a couple of people were ready to keep it going. Um, we first originally was planning to do six just because, like I said, we thought it was going to take a while. We didn't want, I didn't want the podcast to be super, super long. Um, and 
it was Zach Rackman's idea to do seven because he thought it was good that the first guy, a guy with the first pick, he wouldn't have the first pick when we resumed. He thought it was like a little bit of an advantage. So we, we changed it to seven. Um, and, you know, it was short and sweet, but still enough, you know, meat to get through some fun times. Are you planning to complete the draft down the road and will all the future rounds also be on the pull hitter pod? Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely planning to do it on the, on the podcast. Um, we may even decide to do a live stream as well, uh, with video, um, if everyone behaves, uh, <laughs> but, uh, we're definitely plans. I think, I think we're, we might even start it up when the playoffs start, maybe do another seven rounds when the playoffs start and then maybe resume into a possible slow draft. That was our original, um, idea was to resume it, um, as a slow draft in November when the NFPC gets their website going, um, with the draft formats, but we had so much fun that we, we might just keep doing pockets of, of, of seven rounds or nine rounds, you know, um, as we, as we near toward the new drafting season. I think that's a pretty good idea because a lot of analysis when people are talking about draft prep for any particular season, but if you look at uh, 2023, so we know what's going to happen is there's going to be an enormous amount of content about who should go in the first round, quite a bit about who should go in the second round, quite a bit about who should go in the third round, and it'll trickle off from there until maybe the fifth round. And that's where the analysis will end. But at the same time, almost all of us know that the drafts are usually won in the 15th through the 23rd rounds, because that's where you're picking up the guys who make the critical difference. We know we're going to get our stars in the first round. The question is, what order are they going to be in? And, you know, a lot of that just depends on where you draw out of the hat, your draft position, right? And so on all the way down the draft. But the draft really is in that 15 to 20 round for me, that's where the, the meat of the draft is, or maybe 13 to 20, something like that. So you could really kind of slow draft up to that point from now and then re-live draft 13, 14, and 15, because that's what people are real interested. And maybe 2021, 20, 22, something like that, because that's where the sleepers will be. And that's what a lot of listeners are super curious about. What do all these experts think? Where's the hidden value? Who's the draft pick that yeah. everybody wants? All those kinds of things. I think you're really onto Absolutely. something here. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's why, um, you know, I love the uh, the Launch Angle podcast with Jeff Zimmerman and uh, Rob Silver. Because um, they, during draft season, they 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 run the ADP from like 200 up, you know, to the 500s. And they cover these guys in high detail, uh, you know, like you said, because that's where you really find some league winners, you know, and it's really important. Like everyone knows, we always hear about the top. Like you said, so it's it's, uh, extremely important to know that middle pack. I don't remember where I heard it, but I remember during the preseason that somebody I trust, and I wish I'd written it down because I'd love to give him the credit, said the guy that you need to have on your roster this year is Julio Rodriguez of Seattle because he is going to play. And when he plays, he's really something because I guess they'd seen him in the minor leagues and really had this very positive thing. So I went $7 on him in my Tout American League draft best $7 nice. I ever spent in that league, I think. And if it wasn't for him, I mean, I'm not going to win the league or come close, but I'm going to have a pretty good finish. And mostly because 
what a player, <laughs> you know, this is a, he's going to be right. 40 next year. I'm pretty sure of that somewhere in the late thirties, uh, early forties. I think it's really going to be something. And I think there's a ton of value in it. As I said, in fact, I'm going to make a note to myself to do something like this on baseball HQ radio next year and kind of ignore the first 10 rounds and start at round 11, maybe, and, and go through and say, who do you like yeah. in round 11? You know, because I, I think that's of more use to everybody. Are you going to play the league out? Yes, yes. This is going to be a $150 paid draft champions league. It's going to be part of the overall. Um, yeah, and we're going to play it out. Yep. Let's go through this uh, really quickly. In the first round, uh, as I said, Trey Turner went first. Jose Ramirez went third. Garrett Cole went fifth. And that was fairly chalky, as someone said. But in between were picks some people might find in a little bit surprising. Uh, Shohei Otani plugged a utility spot at the number two selection. And Julio Rodriguez, I mentioned, was at number four. First, can Otani be used as both a pitcher and a hitter from that one roster slot in the format? Yes, yes. He can't be used, like, he won't get the stats from both spots in the same week. You have to use him as one or the other. But yes, he's he's eligible to be used as a batter in the in the by the bi-weekly moves or he can be started as a pitcher um you know for the week so if he got a start early in the week you'd have to start him and not start him as a hitter but on friday when the second thing goes in you could get his three games as a hitter as well that week no no you actually can't you oh, okay. once you're locked into the full pitcher week he's locked into the full pitcher week so okay you, you have to choose one or the other but it, it is available to be used. Um, and I think it's quite valuable, honestly. Oh, yes, it certainly is valuable. Pick six was Ronald Acuna, seven was Judge. You took Kyle Tucker at eight, Mookie Betts went ninth, and then Juan Soto fell all the way to 10th, and I was a little surprised by that. What do you think about Soto falling to 10? I'm kind of okay with it, Patrick. I'm not really a Juan Soto um, fan um, in, in fantasy. I think he's really fantastic skill set. Uh, especially if you're playing in an OBP league. Um, I think he just leaves too much to be had by his non-swinging ways. I think he leaves a lot of counting stats out to be, you know, to be had. I think if he swung a little more, um, that's just my opinion. You know, I've, I've always been a little scared of his ground ball rate. It kind of fluctuates and it leans on the high side for me. I also think the National Park also played pretty strong for him, even though he's going to be on a better team. Um I just kind of think that, I don't know, I'm just, I'm not really, uh, I think he has to swing more in the zone. Um, I think I think he leaves too many balls in the zone that could be driven and, and, and just, I think he's too passive. At number 11, Bryce Harper, Freddie Freeman went 12th, uh, Corbin Burns, second pitcher at 13, and then at 14, Bobby Witt Jr. Again, a little bit of a surprise. What did you think about that pick? Quick thing before I get into Bobby Witt, quick tidbit on Bryce Harper that we didn't even think about. Um, James Anderson picked him. He didn't even think about this. We didn't even think about it until someone reckoned, uh, mentioned it on Twitter, but he's, he hasn't qualified for outfield for next year yet. So to start the season next year, right now, he's going to be UT only um, until he gains eligibility in the outfield next year. So just for the listeners, just for a little tidbit, um, he hasn't gained outfield eligibility for next year yet. Uh, I think he needs, um, yeah, I'm okay with Bobby Witt. I like a lot of the way his metrics are trending. I think it's a solid base of stolen base and home runs. The average is probably a little bit to be, you know, maybe concerned about, but he's still young enough, and I just think he's got the, that pedigree and that willingness to be better um, that can drive his, I think we're all just tantalized by 30-30, you know, and um, he's trending right now to 
you know, 25, 25 ish. So that's a pretty solid season. So I think with a little bit of growth and maybe getting to that 30, 30 season, that could work out for that pick. And I noticed when, as we went down the hitter list, I was looking at the second round, third round, really, uh, most of the hitters who went early were speed and power combination guys. Witt, if he goes 30-30, he certainly belongs in the first round, and there's no reason to suggest that he can't do it. He's already looked like he's got the power. He's certainly got the speed. So I think that's going to be an interesting pick. At 15, to, to wrap up the round, Dylan Cease of the White Sox, and I know Dylan Cease has really made great strides this season, but I was still surprised he went in the first round what did you think when Dylan Cease's name was called and it was called ahead of like Shane McClanahan and some of the other guys that are usually thought of in that uh, elite level of, of aces because the draft was before McClanahan went on the IL? I'm, I'm a little biased toward this because I'm a big Dylan Cease guy. Uh, he's one of my most rostered players this year. Um, I was real aggressive on drafting him this year, always pushing the ADP on him. So I kind of love this pick. I think he's probably going to be in my top three SPs for next season. Uh, I just think he's so dominant in the zone. He makes batters reach. And uh, just aside from the stats too, he makes, he seems to just make a pr- improvements every year uh, on, on, on his pitch mix change and in-season pitch mix change. He's either adding more of the uh, knuckle curve or then he'll add more of the slider from game to game. He just seems to be really, um, just really starting to evolve into a good pitcher. Um and on the uh, on the really high metric side of things, like his active spin rate and the and the rise on the fastball is, he just seems seems to be keep improving those things, which makes him tough to hit. I think he just if he works efficiently, I think that's his next step to work efficiently, to get into the six innings pitch per start instead of the five. Um, I think we might be looking at the next three hundred strikeout pitcher. Starting the second round, Vlad Guerrero, then uh, Alcantara, another pitcher, Jordan Alvarez. Raphael Devers, Manny Machado, then Shane McClanahan, we talked about him, Max Scherzer right behind him, and then you took Edwin Diaz, the first closer taken, and you said later on in the podcast that you did that because you wanted to cause some chaos, which I thought was remarkably honest of you, but uh, what did you mean and did you think you succeeded? Did you cause chaos? Uh, No, I didn't. I didn't cause the chaos. I thought it was going to, you know, cause everyone to... uh run a string of you know closers after that but i was okay with it i didn't i didn't really need them to execute on my wantonness of the chaos causing but um um you know i i feel like so many of my league this year that um just like my 73rd overall team i i I don't have enough saves this is my weakest category and i felt like, like if i executed earlier with closers i feel like i have a good ability to find volume playing time later on especially with bats um that i don't mind taking a closer early um i really wanted to sound the trumpets as well which i did on the podcast and uh but you know i'm okay i i like the hundred strikeouts from the closer spot um it almost makes you able to you know not have to uh, reach for k upside with your you know bottom round pitchers so i like it i'm i'm confident with it any chance you'll take a target on Alexis Diaz next year as you get into the later rounds? Another high strikeout reliever for sure, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I just, you know, you just worry about the usage from uh, David Bell. You know, he's just really, he's just one of those maddening, you know, uh, I don't know why they keep rolling out Hunter Strickland. Again, that might be an arbitration thing, you know, like keep keep the player's value down um, for arbitration and, and, and use the veteran more 
so he doesn't have a high save total because he's clearly better than Hunter Strickland, so he should be getting all the opportunities. Moving along, uh, Jacob Dubram goes 24th, uh, Nolov 25th, Luis Robert 26th to Austin Riley, Brandon Woodruff and Zach Wheeler rounding out the pitchers in this round, except for number 30, Julio Arias. And I don't know who drafted him at number 30 at the wheel, but acknowledged that he had velo issues early in the year, but then called him a stud and a bunch of the other drafters started snickering. What did you think of Julio Arias at that number 30 slot? Yeah, I mean, the noted drop in Velo is definitely interesting. Um, I think a lot of people were hesitant to draft him this year because he went from 55 innings to 185 from 2020 to 2021. His Velo had dropped about a mile an hour, but um, I don't know. I need more than nine Ks per nine from, uh, you know, a pitcher here. That's just my opinion. Um, I think that his, he's got a high strand rate too. And I just think that ability, if your velo is dropping as you get older, you're just going to have to get you know better as an overall pitcher, which he definitely has the skill to do. I just, um, I think he's, he's boosted by, you know, playing on a great team, which boosts up his wins, which is fine. You know, which, you know, you can't bank on wins. You can't chase them, but you could definitely put yourself in a position, you know, by finding, you know, a good pitcher with a good team offense, uh, you know, behind him. So, but I'm not really, you know, I'm not a really um, a, a rise fan here. I think more like fourth round-ish, I'd probably be all over a guy like him. Going into the third round, pick 31, Trevor Story got lots of, oh, wow, comments. You called it interesting on the podcast, but how surprised were you that Trevor Story went in this early slot? I mean, Jason Dupont, who picked Urias and Story, he's a huge, he's a diehard Red Sox fan. Um, so I'm not really super surprised, um, but I'm also, I don't know. I mean, his 600, his, his 600 at-bat pace right now is still 24-20 with a tw- about a 250 average. I think it's decent. Um, it's not something I would have done, but um, I think sometimes too, Patrick, I think when we're on the wheel, it kind of influences a lot of what we do. You know, sometimes maybe you might be afraid you're going to lose out on, on a position like shortstop or power and speed. So maybe he just felt the need to get some kind of 2020 base here. That makes sense. Yeah. And it even makes more sense when you look at who went 32, the immediate next pick was Bo Bichette of Toronto. And as soon as the pick was announced, a lot of people were yelling, I got sniped, I got sniped. And a couple of drafters <laughs> said that they had contemplated taking Bichette even earlier in the draft. But I was surprised by this one. The pick makes him the 20th hitter off the board. He's only the, about the 40th most valuable hitter this year on Baseball HQ's valuations. It's his worst season across the board. His batting average is down. His OPS is down. Homers and stolen bases are down from like a 26-20 sort of pace to a 20-10 sort of pace. OPS is down by 130 points. I think to pick Bichette at this point in a draft really is giving him a lot of credit for a rebound that I don't understand why we would give him that credit because it's been going down ever since he got into the majors and he's having an awful lot of trouble fielding. And I think he's taking that trouble to the plate with him. I just feel like maybe the stolen base percentage isn't something that's usually sticky. You know, um, I think that he maybe he can get better at it. I think maybe too, if the, if, if MLB implements, you know, something uh, with the pitch clock or anything next year, I don't know if that's something that's going to be done next year, but it could probably help him in that case, uh, which has had helped a lot of players in the minors. Um, I know last year he had 29-25 homers, stolen bases. This year's pace about 22-13. and 13. Um, So definitely lower 
Um, well, what I found interesting, though, his the league average home run to barrel percentage is 56%. He's currently at 45%. So I think maybe he's getting a bit unlucky there. I think maybe he could have a couple more homers under his belt. His, his O-swing is actually better this year. What I found interesting, his K percentage is up 5%, but his swinging strike rate is only up 0.5%. So I think something doesn't add up for me here. And I just think that his age, his his pedigree and his ability to um, be on a really solid team that could pump out offense. Um, I'm not too worried at this spot. I think that's still, like we mentioned, chasing that power speed baseline here, 2020 minimum is still, I think something that's attainable. And I, I think it's a good pick. At 33, Emmanuel Classe, uh, Lindor, Albies, Starling Marte, Pete Alonso. Then you took Jazz Chisholm. Oh, yes, I did. Uh, <laughs> um, interesting pick, I know. Um, you know, uh, I'm a big, uh, I run SGP on multiple projections. I aggregate a whole bunch of them. But I also am a big, you know, I'm a big um, Mayberry Method and Babs guy myself. I like to use one to help the other. And I think they work hand in hand on either confirming one side or the other. And he's always been a Babs darling. So, um and he was this year as well. So I just feel like second base is really weak. When I was looking at the pool, I think this is one of the things that I kind of learned in this draft was looking toward next year. Second base is kind of meh all throughout. So um, the Steamer 600 has him at about 26, 25. Um, got a better K percentage, better walk percentage. Is something I like to use to uh, swing decisions. I like to um, take Z swing and minus it by O swing. So just making sure that Players are swinging enough in the zone, being aggressive enough, but also not reaching a lot. Um, and he's actually improved it by almost 4% this year to just a little above league average. So I think it's a little bit of offense around him. I think Don Mattingly is kind of a little bit of a thorn in his side because he doesn't like him. So I think if those things kind of value out that um, I can get a you know 25-25 season from second base and uh, just felt like it was really important to get it there. At 39, Jordan Romano, then Teoscar Hernandez, Paul Goldschmidt down at 41, which considering how he's playing this year seemed a bit of a, a bit of a late get, a good get at, at that position. Uh, Kevin Gosman, a lot of J's in this little run here. Uh, Justin Verlander before he got hurt. Uh, at 44, Jose Altuve, and this drafter echoed what you said. He thought 20, uh, 2023 would be thin at second base. Uh, pick 45 was... The end of the third round, Max Fried of Atlanta, and then to start the fourth, Liam Hendricks. And there was a comment here from somebody on your pod that the closer order they found was interesting with Diaz, Classe, Romano, then Hendricks. I thought it looked pretty chalky to me, but what do you think that they thought made it interesting? It definitely looks like a good order of things for sure. Um, I think maybe it just might be interesting because um, two things, I think obviously because he was drafted so heavily as first or second, you know, he was never the third closer this year. So I don't think his skills have fallen off that much. That makes you like bump him down that much. So maybe that's what some of the managers thought that made it interesting. Another thing too, I just think it might be, I was listening to that too, when I was listening back to it and it was like almost like an, like an order response a lot of us had because we're so focused on the draft. Like, oh, that's interesting. You know, like it's almost like one thing that just comes out of your mouth as like a like an autopilot kind of response, you know. So uh, but I noticed that a lot too, that a lot of people said, Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Fernando Tatis went next. A lot of reaction to that pick. Uh, given the two months he's gonna miss next year, given the injury history, uh, some other 
of your drafters said maybe the fifth round, at least one said they're not taking him at all. What did you think of Tatis uh, at the very early stages of the fourth? I think it's a good spot. I think it's a good spot in this overall kind of contest where, I mean, even if you, even when I ran the SGP and I took, you know, 30 games off of him, he was still such a real good value. And I just feel like, uh, you know, that's what a lot of the players play for. They play for that overall component. And um, I think this was pre-determining he was going to do the shoulder surgery. So maybe it would have been a different kind of reaction, different kind of pick. Maybe would have went a little later. I'm not supremely convinced that the shoulder surgery will make him any quote-unquote better. Um, I think it might just even delay his you know, ability to heal and be ready to play. But it also has to do with when the Padres, how the Padres do in the playoff. Because from what I learned, I didn't know this, Patrick, but that the playoffs game count toward the suspension. So if they do well in the playoffs and play more games, they could dock, you know, they take away some games he'll be off in the regular season to start the season. Oh, yeah. Could could save him a couple of weeks at least next year for sure. Yeah. If, if they go far is the key thing. Uh, Michael Harris went 48th, which was around early, according to everybody who didn't pick him. You also said you'd probably have put him more like 65th. Uh, why did you think that this was a little early for Michael Harris? It's funny because I think a lot of people felt that it was a good pick and you make it a little early. I just think that I love the speed. I think he could get the bump to lead off next year. It could be extremely valuable to him. Um, I think he just has to improve those swing swing decisions. Um, but he's still a young kid who just went from double A to the major league. So I think those swing decisions can kind of be graced right now. I don't think he's, you know, like his O swing being in the Javi Baez range doesn't mean he's going to always be Javi Baez. You know, I still think that a lot for him to, uh, you know, um, learn, but uh, team context and all too, like he doesn't have to be the superstar. So it allows him to maybe, you know, feel the, just work into those things. Um, I like this pick. I mean, it, it, it could really be, like I said, we're, we're shooting for 2020 type talent. Um, and who knows, maybe he, he just, he developed even quicker than we think. Moving on at 49, Marcus Semyon, then Luis Castillo, JT Real Muto at 51, uh, Nolan Arenado at 52. This surprised me a bit. Both Goldie and Arenado seem to go a little later than I thought based on what they're doing this year, but who knows. At 53 was your pick, and your second closer uh, of the va- available guys, you took Josh Hader, and your tone of your voice sounded like you were saying, what the hell, let's roll some dice here. Yeah, that that was definitely... That's definitely what I was thinking. Um, but again, my thought process is the same thing with Edwin Diaz. Like at the top of their games or even in, even in their 80th percentile outcome, I still think together they're giving me about 175 to 200 strikeouts with 60 saves. And if I can get those numbers from those two guys, the 60 saves will put me in, a, in the top four of the league right off the bat. Something I don't have to go speculating on later. Um, I could just focus on you know, gobbling up late volume. Um, and I don't know. I just think it's a near 30 pick change from his last year draft price. I'm just confident that he won't be continuing on this route of being, you know, so bad. So I don't know. I think I'm going to get a discount here. And I think that as he fixes things toward this season and to the beginning of next season, that we'll see this maybe be like a 20 round discount from when, you know, draft season will be in full steam next year. 
at pick 54, Cedric Mullins. Then Ryan Presley, I thought, might have been a guy who interested you, but I think this was Ryan Bloomfield who took him, and then he joked, I'll get another 20 saves from a guy on a 110-win yeah. Houston team, and everybody <laughs> laughed. But there's a lot of truth to it, actually. It's pretty interesting. It and really is. 56, Randy Rosarena. 57, Joe Musgrove. 58, Shane Bieber. And there was a lot of laughter about this one after whoever drafted him said the pick was based on Bieber's velo being up in his last start. And everybody said, one start does not a season make. But what did you think about the pick? Talk about recency bias, huh? Um, but I think I think there is a bias that we have right now with Shane Bieber because, I mean, listen, he, he obviously had that 2020 season, which magical. Um, and there was obviously some things that in, in that season that we knew he wouldn't be able to sustain, like 40% strikeout rate, 90% strand rate. Those things were going to come down, but and we're looking at him right now. I mean, the guy is just uh, again a strikeout per nine, uh, nine nine Ks per nine, which is which is what Urias has. So now you're getting him twenty eight picks later. You're, get, you're getting basically the same pitcher. Um, you know, getting pretty much the same skill set. Uh, just the ERA estimators back up everything he's doing. He's on a really good team with an extraordinary bullpen. So I like this pick right here. I, I just think that a lot of what Shane Bieber does right now, we're blocked from that peak Shane Bieber we saw. But I don't think it should. You know, I think I think our minds play, you know, a lot of games on us. And this is something that's blocking us from seeing what he's actually done this year. At 59, somebody's always willing to take a shot at Byron Buxton, that's for sure. At 60, to wrap up the fourth, we had uh, Matt Olson uh, moving into the fifth round. Robbie Ray, you Darvish, uh, Sal Perez, Alec Manoa, Devin Williams, another closer, uh, Spencer Strider, uh, Ryan Helsley. Somebody later commented that they were surprised that Helsley and Williams went in this round because, and I quote, we don't know if they're closers or not. Do we not know that? Very good question. Um, I tend to think that Helsley is more of a lock than Devin Williams. I don't like the way Devin Williams looks in his role without Hater there, and it could be just a short sample. But he just, I don't know. Uh, and, and you know, with those two teams, the Cardinals and the Brewers, they're such analytical-driven teams, as they've even mentioned, their closer-by-calculation, you know, approach. Um, and I always think that they'll have the opportunity. Like Taylor Rogers, uh, I, I think everyone forgets, you know, how many saves he's had in the, in the last four seasons. He, he's still in the top ten in saves. He's still uh, uh, not really, um, you know, a far drop-off from Josh Hader, a, a similar style, a similar side. So. I just think that between him and guys like Matt Bush and Brad Boxberger, that I don't know if Devin Williams is the guy that I'm kind of targeting here. I just think there's much worry between the coaching coach and the player himself. At 68, you grabbed Tim Anderson, and I thought this was a steal so far into the draft. Why do you think Anderson fell to you in the fifth? Maybe this is what I was alluding to before, like people looking at rest of season as kind of like a baseline for you know, who who they were looking, and he doesn't have a rest of season projection. So maybe something has to do with that where, you know, he wasn't making a lot of lists. Um, but I don't know. Uh, you know, he also has a pretty big injury history. Um, this is actually the pick I didn't want to make here, Patrick, because I really needed starting pitching. But I just really couldn't pass up Tim Anderson here. I just think that the batting average, the run score at the top of a, you know, pretty decent lineup, not the lineup we thought the White Sox were ever going to become. but that could still change. And um, I just felt like having three players in the my, my, 
my first three bats giving me 20 to 25 stolen bases apiece would, would be a really good baseline. At 69, catcher Will Smith. Uh, at 70, a little bit of a surprise, Corbin Carroll, who has, what, nine at-bats so far this year in the big leagues? Adley <laughs> Rutschman right yep. after that, which I thought was a, a pretty good get at that rate. A uh, couple of closers, Felix Bautista and Kenley Jansen, question marks there, of course. At 74, this was pretty interesting. Mike Trout got picked, and a whole bunch of people on the on the pod on the draft said, what, Mike Trout's still available? I guess we just assume that somebody must have taken him and they've scratched him off their list. So that was pretty interesting. And then they wrapped up the round with George Springer of the Jays, another power-speed combo, a little short on the speed maybe. Uh, going into the sixth, they started with Carlos Rodon, Framber Valdez, Andres Jimenez looked like a good pick, a Wander Franco, Corey Seager, uh, David Bednar, maybe a closer, but nobody knows for sure, and Freddie Peralto. Before we got to you, at 83, Vinny Pasquantino, why did you order Italian breakfast at this slot? Because I'm Italian. No. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I'm really in love with his skill set. The guy who almost walks more than he strikeouts, you know, it's like a two percentage off. Just really fascinating. Um, just has a really great launch angle, um, great exit velocity, max EV, hit the ball hard in the air, strong. Um, he, he, 40% zone swing minus O swing, which is like 4% above league average. So he not reaching, knowing when to swing in the zone. I really like that. And this year, you know, I found like there was a catcher pocket. I mean, a first base pocket. It was either up at the top with Goldschmidt, Alonzo, and Freeman. If you didn't want to go that high, most, you know, players like me, I know my tendency was to wait for the Reese Hoskins, Josh Bell, Clump, CJ Crone, and like that 120 area. So I think he fits somewhere in between those guys. They keep kind of leapfrogs the likes of Hoskins and Josh Bell for me because I think the power is going to be similar and I think the average is going to be um, better. So, um, yeah. That's why I went with him. And anybody, uh, Vinny Pasquantino's hurt right now. And so far in, in Kansas City, he's looked okay. He's hit a few home runs. His skills haven't been quite what they were in the minors. But go check his minor league record for this year. It was unbelievable. He was another Barry Bonds down there. I'm not kidding. Uh, just taking a million walks. He was hardly ever striking out. And he was hitting the ball all over the place. I think he had a 1,100 OPS or something like that in AAA. I grabbed him up in Tout Wars. You can draft guys early, so I got him for a buck two weeks before he got called up. And unfortunately, he got hurt. Uh, injuries ha happen, I guess, and nothing you can do about it. Uh, at pick 84, Dansby Swanson, then Xander Bogarts, Reese Hoskins you just mentioned, uh, Logan Webb. I think uh, whoever drafted him originally called him Brandon Webb, which uh, everybody got a good chuckle yes, out of. Yes, yes. <laughs> At 88, Jorge Polanco, then Brian Reynolds. Brian Reynolds is one of those guys, I think, who always goes too late in drafts just because nobody thinks of Pittsburgh guys. And then Chris Bryant. And we moved into the seventh round. Tommy Edmond, Dalton Varsho, a closer, Razel Iglesias. Um, he's in Atlanta, but whoever drafted him said he's going to be the Atlanta closer. They sounded very sure of that. Uh, Tyler Glasnow, Blake Snell, Wilson Contreras, Christian Javier, and then your last pick in this uh, little exercise, Nick Lodolo raised a few eyebrows. Why such a young pitcher in such a tough team context, considering the home park and the weak supporting cast? You know what? I, I, I had a, you know, I had this, I knew I had to get some starting pitchers eventually. And I kind of wanted to get one before the draft ended in that, you know, in that segment that we did. Um, I'm not going to debate the park and the supporting cast. That's that definitely to my disadvantage. But 
I like the team context. I feel like the Reds are so driven, you know, by that, you know, the new drive line, Kyle Body, and just seems like the kind of pitcher that's taking advantage of that, you know, in his arsenal. Um, I love the sinker curve, sinker curve combo. It seems to like tunnel well, like they come out of the hand the same way, and then they just do completely different things. Um, he's got tw- almost twenty eight percent K rate in his first sixty seven innings, so might have been a reach. Um, but that next batch of starting pitchers that I was looking at, Jose Berrios, I wasn't really thrilled about. Charlie Morton, I don't know if he's playing next year. Kyle Wright, I don't know. Maybe I'm just biased because every time the Mets play Kyle Wright, they seem to get to him. And even though his numbers aside from that are really otherworldly, you know, guys like Lucas Giolito, I don't know. I didn't know where to go, honestly, in like the veteran pitching route. So I know like Lodolo was going to be targeted by several guys in this draft so I guess my, it was my goal to just try to get him before um I guess because I know the room I know there's like three or four players in the room that were going to be on him sooner or later so I just wanted to get him and that's an important part of drafting especially with people that you know is you know those kind of things or you can build that into your expectations and if you want Nick Lodolo yep. you say well if I don't get him here I don't pick again for another 20 picks or whatever it is, he'll probably be gone. So I'm going to get him while I can. At 99, Kyle Schwarber. At 100, this was a bit of a surprise for me. Alejandro Kirk of Toronto, I thought he'd be picked much earlier than that because, you know, you need catchers. And gosh, he's a weird looking little guy, but he can hit. Uh, I really like Alejandro Kirk. What do you think of him? Like I mentioned before, I'm really a fan of getting like anchor catchers. I love having at least one really solid one and most of the times two. Um, so I like the approach here. Um, everything in the skill set screams out, yes. Um, he's kind of one of the guys where in the SGP system, in the projection, he was even higher than this. You know, obviously, everyone approaches the catch evaluation a little differently uh, because of the importance I put on to it. He was like almost in the top 50. Um, so, I mean, I like it. I like it. it I, I think it's aggressive, but I also think it's it's – I think it could work out because um, catchers, it's 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 an interesting group of catchers. You know, I just mentioned the next couple of picks too to end the draft uh, that I think there's a, a big group of young catchers and it seems to be like everyone wants a piece of the catchers early. Um, so I think it's a good move. I think it's a good move, too. I think it's a great get. 101, Zach Gallen, I think was the last picture taken. Eloy Jimenez got taken. Uh, CJ Crone at 103. And then two catchers to wrap up, as you mentioned. MJ Melendez, I love this pick, and Tyler Stevenson. So it was a really interesting draft, and uh, I'm really looking forward to how it keeps going. I'll probably be tuning in uh, as many times as I can for the whole rest of it because I found it really interesting and fun, as you mentioned. Uh, how would you summarize lessons learned? from this draft do you think i think i really highlighted that second baseman's pretty barren um and that i wanted to get it um early um i feel like the distribution um was something that was interesting because uh i think you noted in the notes too the 30 starting pitches were taken in the first 105 picks which was pretty similar to how Draft champions started through the end of February last year and continued in March. Um, usually, like there was about forty-two um, starters plus closers on average in the first one hundred and five picks. So pretty, pretty much the same. So um, the outfielders, I know you mentioned it, they went heavy early, um, and even though they are relative a plenty, I don't mind that approach. I think that 
is never enough outfielders that you could have, um, especially looking at some of my draft champions teams right now, you know, uh, rolling out the likes of, uh, you know, players that I would rather not. So I think going early and adding heavy outfielders is, is definitely a good approach. Um, and the closers, you know, the, the closer situation was interesting. I think there was players that you, you thought was going to go and, um, and it, it's like the least concrete thing that we could really think about right now. And, and it struck me um, pretty, pretty um, odd that um, it, it just went like, actually just as I thought actually the closest did. So there was no surprises there. It was just, uh, I'm glad everyone, you know, went that route because I think it's going to be a strategy that, that we're going to have to keep taking is getting the closest early. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter Podcast. And Rob, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And since we're near the end of this season, and since you've been looking ahead to 2023 with your early uh, Pull Hitter Podcast draft, let's look at your boons and banes for 2023. We'll start with your boons. These are players you think are going to represent good value in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a boon? Um, I'm going to go with Luis Arias on the Minnesota Twins. Um, just elite contact. Um, I think a lot of people may think that he's not into the power um, as much, but he improved his max exit velocity as much as anyone in the major league from his previous high to this year. Um, and I think with that elite contact and with more chances for damage, I think he's building into some power. I think he's really changed some of his launch angle buckets um, to induce a little more lift. The multi-eligibility is huge. He, he kind of reminds me a little bit of early J-Ram um, with a little less speed, but like was really contact focused, but slowly, slowly added a little bit more lift, a little more power. I don't think he'll end up with that 30 home run power, but I think 15 could be attainable in the future for him. I once talked with somebody who said, I'd rather have a guy who can make contact, who can develop power than a guy who already has power, but needs to develop contact. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. In the National League, who's a batter boon? Um, I am going to go with my man I mentioned before, Mr. Jazz Chisholm. I think he's going to be a league winner next year with his power-speed combination. I think he's going to continue um, improving his swing position and his hit tool. And I think that with a little bit of help on the offensive side, that his counting stats will rise up with that. Over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher you think could be a boon? I'm going to go with Mr. Drew Rasmussen on the Tampa Bay Rays. Um just really love his ability to um, – he's just improved so much from the first half to the second half, and I think that's uh, really, really a testament to the Rays as well as himself. Um, he's already 40, pitch, 40 innings above his previous high, um, and in the second half, he's, his, his estimators have lined up with his ERA, and he's got a 24% K rate toward a 3% walk rate. So um, I like Drew Rasmussen. I like those really good strikeout minus walk numbers. Uh, National League pitcher who could be a boon? I'm going to go with Nick Lodolo's teammate, Mr. Hunter Green, on the Cincinnati Reds. Um, just really one of those elite arms that I still think hasn't had a lot of opportunity yet to even pitch in the mi- in the majors and the minors. Um, his K percentage is in the top 20% of starting pitchers with um, eligible innings pitched. And, um, I just think, like I said, with a good team behind him, the, 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 the analytical driven reds, um, he need to change the shape on that fastball, which he kind of was doing before he got hurt. Um, just getting a little more 
movement to it instead of being so flat. And I think that he could figure that out. And I think he's going to be pretty lethal in the future. Over to the Baines. These are players you think are going to be overdrafted or overvalued in next season's drafts. So let's start again in the American League with a batter you think is likely to be a Bane. I am going to go with Taylor Ward on the Los Angeles Angels. Um, I know he did a lot of work this year to hit high fly, um, high fastballs in his own. He kind of geared his whole approach to that. Um, but I think teams kind of know that now, and he's kind of struggling with the with um, how they have changed their approach toward him. So I think he has to make the adjustment back. It doesn't seem to be working yet. He still has some hard contact, but the second half numbers have just been um, a little too much for me to uh, really get involved with. And I just think that his his O-swing too has risen. I think that complements that the, the way the pitchers are pitching him now. And I just think he'll be overdrafted. I think he's going to go in a spot where I'm just not going to be interested. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a bane? I'm going to go with Mr. Alec Bohm on the Philadelphia Phillies. Ten home runs, and two of them came off of a quad-A pitcher, Mr. Jose Brito, on the New York Mets. So he had the same amount of extra base hits as J.P. Crawford and Cesar Hernandez. Fly ball percentage, 28%, 714 OPS, doesn't pull the ball, doesn't hit for power. I'm just not into it. I just think that you can go to other spots for your third base. I think you're right because he's been a boon, according to a few people here on Baseball HQ Radio. So I suspect he's going to be drafted higher than people who are not that confident are going to be willing to pay the price. Back over to the mound, how about an American League pitcher who could be a bane? I'm going to go with your hometown Toronto Blue Jays right now and go with Alec Manoa. Um, his ex-FIP and Sierra both are one and a half run over his actual ERA. His K percentage is down 4%. Um, zone contact is up 5% to just a little above the league average. It was what 80% last year and his slider, which was his best pitch has kind of lost some of his horizontal movement. So less of that sweep that went outside the zone and got batters to chase. So I am a little concerned about, I'm not concerned about his overall pitching ability, but I think I'm losing that desire to draft him. I thought he was just going to be SP one in the future. And like even this year going forward. And I just think that, he might not reach that unless he takes a different approach. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a Bane? I actually had this written down before the injury as well, but I'm going to go with Mr. Tony Gonsling on the Dodgers. Uh, again, the estimators are about a run and a half above his actual um, run. I think he's, I think he's just, again, going to be too high, and he's not really enough of a a strikeout artist for me to um, get on it. Um, Z contact also is, has dropped about three, 4%. Um, and I don't think he'll ever be a guy that gets to 130, 150 innings. I, I know he's almost there now, but just seems he's 28 years old. And I, I just think time is running out for him to be anything of length. It's not that there's anything bad about getting good innings, you know, out of 125, but uh, you know, getting good innings in that span, but um, I'm not really thrilled about drafting him next year. I think what I want to find is next year's Tony Gonsolin rather than this year's, yeah. because, <laughs> you know, I think that ship sailed. Uh, Rob DiPietro's Boons, Luis Arise of Minnesota, Jazz Chisholm of Miami, Drew Rasmussen of Tampa, and Hunter Green of Cincinnati. His Baines, Taylor Ward of the Angels, Alec Baum of Philadelphia, Alec Manoa of Toronto, and Tony Gonsolin of the Dodgers. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Rob DiPietro. Uh, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Deadpool Hitter. I also have a handle for at Pull Hitter Pod. 
And um, you can find my podcast, the Pull Hitter Podcast, on pretty much all the major platforms out there. I put out usually one a week. I try to get to two a week sometimes, but I cover the main event um, fab player movement with Mr. Todd Whitestone from SP Streamer. And um, he writes an article, and we kind of go off that article to talk about the, you know, the biggest uh, ad of the week, the most expensive ads, some of the uh, maybe questionable drops. And we also discussed the, uh, the overall standings and some of the you know, highlights, some players in the NFBC. And then uh, sometimes I get to do a lineup pod for from, from Friday to Sunday where I just highlight some pl- um, platoon and trend changes, you know, to watch out for as you're setting your lineups for the weekend. So, and in the off season, um, like we mentioned, I just like to get to, you know, talk to some brilliant minds in this game that we play and this hobby that we love and, uh, you know, try to get better each day. So uh, really wanted to say thank you so much, Patrick, for having me on. It was a super honor to be here. Are you going to be in first pitch? I don't know yet. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it out this year. Well, that's too bad. But uh, like I said, I'm sure we'll speak again and many times in the future. And I really look forward to it. Thanks again. Rob DiPietro hosts the Pull Hitter podcast. Quick break here. Then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But one more Baseball HQ item I wanted to mention is the Eyes Have It podcast. In this edition, Brent still on the IL. Chris Blessing welcomes Jeff Pontus from Baseball America to talk about the Cape Cod League and to help identify process hitters. Chris and Jeff also spend time discussing how they got involved in the business and the various pathways others took to get their opportunities in the industry. The Eyes Have It and all the other items I've mentioned are only a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, commentaries, and other resources you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation and facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Colorado first baseman Michael Tolia is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a switch hitter with some of the best raw power in Colorado's system, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Hey, that's already a pretty good combination. Switch hitter with raw power playing in Colorado, and he's a former first-round pick in 2019 out of UCLA, 23rd overall. Plus, 24-year-old Colorado Rockies first baseman Michael Tolia is a big dude, according to the August 31st edition of call-ups on BaseballHQ.com, standing 6'5 and 226 pounds, reportedly. This big dude certainly knows how to pound the strike zone to the tune of 30 home runs through two levels of the minors in 2022. 
In fact, Colorado has viewed Tolia as their first baseman of the near future, not just because of his power, but also because of his stellar defense, according to Collups on BaseballHQ.com. But, as Collups aptly points out, while the big switch-hitting first baseman has some serious power from both sides of the plate, and a future home park that operates more as a launch pad, <laughs> passiveness and off-speed struggles cast plenty of doubt of him ever unlocking that power. That's why 24-year-old Colorado Rockies first baseman, Michael Tolia, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, as the Denver Post Patrick Saunders pointed out on August 30th, a few days ago, the Rockies have been waiting for the next Todd Helton since, well, Todd Helton. <laughs> so what is Todd Helton's assessment? According to the same Denver Post article, Todd Helton began working with Tolia in spring training and later told the Post in July that Tolia can use some work at the plate, but there's really nothing big he needs to work on defensively except for maybe right field, where Tolia has reportedly been taking some reps. However, maybe as Todd Helton mentioned in July, Tolia could use some more work at the plate. Hidden beneath his AAA performance, again referencing the August 31st edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com, is a 40% hit rate, a 47% ground ball percentage, and a 50% pull rate, along with a 58% home run to fly ball rate, indicating that Tolia is playing well above his head, according to our experts, and perhaps echoing Todd Helton's July quote in the Denver Post. Adjust accordingly. Even so, Tolia's ninth-inning 391-foot shot off Kenley Jansen with a 103.1-mile-per-hour exit velocity in Tolia's second Major League game offers perhaps a tantalizing taste of the raw power of 24-year-old Colorado Rockies first baseman, Michael Tolia is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about how I might have been wrong about the MLB playoff structure. At roughly this time last year, the Baltimore Orioles had a nine-game homestand that drew just over 102,000 fans, an average of about 11,300 per game. This year, the O's had a nine-game homestand through about the same period of time that drew over 150,000 fans, an average of over 17,000 per game. Now, I know that averaging 17,000 fans a game is not going to rattle the competitive cages of the Dodgers or Yankees or Atlanta, but a 50% increase in gate ain't nothing, especially for a team that has, to be charitable, not been too great these last few seasons. Last year, their one-loss record was a dismal 321 for the season. This year, they're above 500. But there's a bigger reason for Baltimore fans to turn out and cheer their team they're in a run to make the playoffs. It's not because they're a great team. Yeah, they're over 500, but they're fourth in their American League East division, and they're 10 games behind the sagging but still leading Yankees. They're 14 and a half games behind the league best Astros, but they're in a run to make the playoffs. And of course, that's because the Lords of Baseball struck a deal with the players in the most recent collective bargaining agreement to expand the playoffs from 10 teams to 12, the three division winners 
plus three wild cards, the next best teams in each league. When I first heard about this, my reaction was to not like the change. It just reminded me of how the NFL, the NHL, and the NBA have diluted their playoffs by adding wild cards until more than half their teams were in the playoffs, at which point you start asking why they bother with the regular season at all. Why don't they just start with all 30 teams or 32 teams and run a knockout tournament of some kind from opening day through the end of November? Oh, baseball in November, another reason not to like expanded playoffs. Four of the divisions right now look pretty much locked in. The Dodgers, Houston, the Yankees, and St. Louis all look like they're going to win their divisions. The National League East is still a dogfight between the Mets and Atlanta, and the American League Central, well, more of a pie-throwing contest between Cleveland and Minnesota. But the real rooting interest is the wildcard races, which are, I will confess, entertainingly tight with a month to go. In the American League, Tampa, Seattle, and Toronto are separated by just six games. In the National League, Atlanta has one slot locked up and might yet beat out the Mets for the division, but there are three teams vying for the other two slots. The Phillies, Padres, and Brewers are all within three and a half games of one another. These races are leading to a lot more scoreboard watching in a lot more places, and I understand that's probably good for the game. Or is it? It's all designed, it seems to me, to draw in the casual fan, the kind of fan who gets interested in baseball right around Labor Day, if one of the teams he or she likes is among the contenders, so the more contenders you have, the more casual fans you can bring in. The hardcore fan is more likely to bemoan the dilution of the playoffs as I did and the resulting decreasing relevance of the regular season. The lords of baseball like more playoffs because they get what they really want, a way to get the players to play for almost free. Yes, the players get playoff bonus shares and contributions to the pension plan, but the per-game value of those payments is a small fraction of what the players earn per game for regular season play. So it all ends up feeling to me like manipulation. The Lords get a few extra playoff games they can sell to the networks or the cable networks or the regional sports networks or to Apple and Amazon these days, pretty much to anyone who wants into the game and has enough loot to buy their way in. At first, as I said, I didn't like this. I feel like you could have shorter playoffs that would generate a lot more meaningful and perhaps more extended races during the regular season. When I saw Baltimore's attendance figures and similar attendance growth in other parks, I started to reconsider. But now I've thought about it some more, and I think I see the expanded playoffs for what they are, a grab for the attention of people who don't actually like baseball all that much and for the cash that comes with them. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 34 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this Friday full edition, Rob DiPietro, who hosts the Pull Hitter podcast. Rob is a very accomplished fantasy baseball manager, a well-connected and interesting podcast host, and as you heard, a terrific and thoughtful guest here on Baseball HQ Radio. I really enjoyed our talk, and I hope we get to do it again soon. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
Our Market Watch commentators were the ever-reliable Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was the equally reliable Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick David, the unreliable extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Google Pods, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods. We're on all of them now. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice for some reason doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with a two-expert Friday Full Edition featuring expert interviews with James Anderson, the Rotowire Prospects expert, and Toby Guerin from the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. Plus, we'll have all the usual great stuff, our National League and American League news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's James Anderson and Toby Guerin on next Friday's two-expert full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again on Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.